Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, September 22nd, 843-661-0937. Our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Kettlebell toting, Josh. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Are you a kettlebell toter or a kettlebell carrier? You, you seem to be impressed me to be a carrier. Carrier. Yeah. Not so much I'm a not toter. sure what toting is. Okay. <laughs> Tot- he is. You better tell me, boy. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. He's learning. Yeah. He's learning. Um, reluctance to the vaccine kind of leads you down that toting road mm-hmm. instead of the uh, instead of the <laughs> okay. road. contrarian okay. by nature good morning rev good morning so so let's um let's go here for a second i mean let's get deep and philosophical straight out of the game mm. um this morning i need someone of higher than average intellect i mean i can't do this because i'm not bright enough i'm not smart enough i'm not diligent enough i'm a lot of things i'm not that the world we're living in today is shaped by whom? Josh, I'll start with you. I, mean, that, I know it's 607. That's deep. That's philosophical. Whoa, dude. Let's talk about NIL and SEC. You know, in Florida <laughs> right, State, Clemson. Right. Did the Braves South win? Carolina and yes. Yeah, the Braves won. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, let's go there real quick. You ready? Mm-hmm. If Ronald Acuna hits one more home run, not only does he have, in my humble opinion, not so humble opinion, um, the 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 claim to have had the greatest season a Brave has ever had, it could be one of the top ten regular seasons baseball has ever seen. Mm. I mean, it's hard to say it's the best season yeah. ever. I mean, that's you, you get in trouble when you go down that road. But but if Acuna hits three thirty five, if he hits, if he's already got two hundred seven hits, and, and let's let's lay it this way. You ready for the baseball purists? They know this for the um for the person who doesn't keep up with baseball. No big deal. A really good hitter strives for 200 hits. A really good power hitter strives for 40 home runs. An RBI guy tries to get 100 RBIs. And an average guy tries to hit above 300. I mean, that's, that's kind of, you know, that's where uh, a good stolen base guy gets better in 50 right. stolen well, where's bases. The, where's the average stolen yeah, base well, guy? Yeah, well, I mean, it's just less than 50, significantly yep. less than 50. I mean, I would, av- I would argue the average, I mean, if you took all the players in Major League Baseball, and and said, you know, we had this many total stolen bases. It's probably le- less than ten or fifteen, to be honest with you. But Acuna hitting, I mean, today his average took a little bit of a nosedive yesterday, but he's so far into the season with so many at bats, it moves very little now. But I think he was one for six, and um, and I did check on him last night. I mean, I went online. I don't get the Braves any longer because of my um, transitioning to streaming, uh, and YouTube doesn't have the, I guess, the contract. Uh, the carrying rights to the Braves' Bally Sports That's right. platform. Um, so, so anyway, Acuna's hitting above 330. That's really good for an average hitter. Acuna's 200 hits. That kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with a you know, high batting average. He has 100 RBIs. He has 39 home runs and 67 or 8 stolen bases. I mean, that is rare air. I mean, that really and truly is. Uh, I know it's college football season. I know Gamecocks and Tiger fans are thinking about making their way to Death Valley and uh, and Williams Bryce, <laughs> but I'm telling you, the one thing, the one sports franchise the South has historically rallied around is the Braves. I mean, it is Southern professional sports personified. I mean, the Falcons have a little bit of here and a little bit of there, uh, you know. But but the Braves, I'll give you an example. I'm at a SEC football game one Saturday years ago, Tennessee South Carolina. Now, but it's a pretty good game. Remember the guy, Heath Shuler? Heath Shuler was a quarterback 
for Tennessee, got drafted by the Redskins, ended up a member of the U.S. Congress. I don't think he's there now, but he was a congressman from, from North Carolina. Highly rated, highly acclaimed, high draft choice. Just didn't pan out in, in Washington. Shooter was quarterback of Tennessee, and they were pretty good. I mean, Phil Fulmer's days, and the Gamecocks were struggling. Uh, but I went to Columbia one day to tailgate, and um, a football game got out of the way. <laughs> and, um, and, and anyway, fourth quarter, it's, I mean, it's a Donnybrook. I mean, it's back and forth. It's, um, I mean, I think Tennessee may have been favored by three touchdowns, but you get to the, you know, the beginning of the fourth quarter, it's a, a field goal game, and everybody's kind of kind of jacked. Well, the Braves were making that run. One of those um, early years, and they're winning pennant after pennant after pennant after pennant. And, you know, the, the Tennessee, I mean, Tennessee travels well. I mean, they bring a big crowd when they come to a, uh, to a stadium. And um, so the Tennessee faithful expected to be up 21. They're not. They're in a dogfight on the road in the SEC. Um, and all of a sudden, over the PA system, someone said, you know, um, in the bottom of the seventh, Braves five, Giants three. And everybody started doing the tomahawk chop. The Tennessee fans, the Gamecock fans, and then we kind of caught ourselves like, screw you, I'm not your friend right now. I mean, <laughs> but, but, but at least you had that in yeah, common. Everybody kind of for a second spontaneously reacted in a way that they, uh, that they regretted. Now, I'll say this. Here's my conundrum. And I don't know if anybody cares about my conundrum, but we got to wake everybody up. My conundrum is this. The University of South Carolina is the only stadium of the SEC that I know of. And Rev heard me rant about this yesterday, and I made some of my friends aware of this. Um, the University of South Carolina is the only SEC member institution that I'm aware of that has a certain period of time you can tailgate before <laughs> games on university-owned property. The university owns Gamecock Park. That's where I park. Um, it's a, a recently developed piece of land the university paid a lot of money to buy all that, uh, what would it be, farmer's market property. Uh, out of that came this huge parking complex. I mean, it's nice. I mean, it's really, really nice. They hired the same landscape architect that designed the Grove and uh, or, or did some of the improvements at the Grove. I don't know the original designer of the Grove, but some of the improvements at the Grove, which is historic and legendary at Ole Miss. Um, so anyway, a recreation of something similar to the Grove and it's nice. I mean, it's really, really nice, and it makes parking a lot of fun. And I have um, commandeered me a parking spot over there on the end of a row. We've got some excess property that doesn't belong to me, but it looks like it does. Um, <laughs> Rev knows the story. Yeah, so, so anyway, um, here's my conundrum. I want to watch Florida State and Clemson. I mean, I, I do. I mean, and that's a noon game tomorrow. I'm a college football fan. That's a noon game tomorrow. So I'd love to leave – and here's the biggest advantage Gamecocks have on Tigers. You ready? Even when the football sucked, and it has a lot, it only took me an hour and 10 minutes to get to williams Bryce. I mean, you, you can look out of the window and say, it looks like rain. I'm going to wait an hour. You know, or, or yeah. Clemson fans can't do that. They have to kind of road trip. And I've always respected that about Clemson faithful. Um, and I can say this with a degree of civility because I was told by a good Clemson friend of mine that they couldn't relax last weekend because of how well South Carolina played in the first half against Georgia. In other words, they set up their tailgates. You know, they 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 stream their they hook their TVs up to to the streaming devices. They fire their grills up. You know, they're bleeding arms. They're having a big time pulley for their favorite team. They flip the TV on, expecting to see Georgia up. You know, big. All of a sudden, South Carolina's you know kind of shocking the college football world in the first half. 
by being up 14-3. And my good Clemson friend said, we couldn't relax. Now, once Georgia got in control of the game, we could let our guard down and start having fun at our tailgate. For a second, you know, we, we said, okay. <laughs> This is going to really screw our day up. You know, if, if, <laughs> if South Carolina figures out I bet you could have heard the cheers every time Georgia scored. Well, I'm sure they did. I mean, because it's similar. It, it'll be the same thing in Columbia tomorrow. <laughs> uh, if Florida State happens to score, it'll it'll sound like the Gamecock scored in the Wiggins Rice. Yeah. I mean, that's just the and, – and then, look, that doesn't mean you despise no, people. That's, 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 that's the nature of the rivalry, and it's a lot of fun um, to do that. So, so my conundrum is that I'll, – I'll ask this question. Rev knows the answer because I told him yesterday. A 7.30 game in Baton Rouge, what time do they open the university-owned parking lots so people, so the uh, the rabid LSU faithful can tailgate? 6 a.m. Uh, 8. <laughs> 8 a.m. in the morning. Close. So you can scramble eggs, eat a hamburger, and cook a steak <laughs> that evening before watching the Bayou Bengals play a football game. Same thing in Tuscaloosa. Same thing in Auburn. Same thing in Gainesville. Same thing in Knoxville. Same thing in Athens. But But the... The cosmopolitan and somewhat elite University of South Carolina says, oh, no, 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 no. Five hours is plenty to get lathered up. Um, <laughs> so so our, our, our properties will open at 2 o'clock. Uh, well, Clemson plays at 12, and that's got me all goofed yeah. up. Um, but I did hear through the grapevine that there, um, there are certain gates that make exceptions. Little, little, little lacks in security. <laughs> uh, maybe intentionally, maybe not. But, but if you if you go to this particular gate, uh, it may not be manned as uh, as stringently as some of the some of the others have been. So my intent is to get to Columbia, get set up good, uh, and watch Florida State and Clemson play, and then Mississippi and Alabama play in the SEC game of the week, which is kind of an intriguing uh, matchup. And then you know the Gamecocks and um, and Mississippi State play at seven thirty tomorrow night. But will university officials cooperate? I don't know. We we shall see. But if I were an LSU fan, I wouldn't be concerned at all. If I were a Crimson Tide fan, wouldn't be concerned at all. If I were a volunteer fan, wouldn't be concerned at all. If I were a cowbell slinging Mississippi State Bulldog fan, I wouldn't be I'm concerned at all. But um, that's that's uh, you know that that's first world problems, right? I mean, when can you start your right. tailgate? on Saturday at college football. I do think that we're getting a break with the weather. It looks to me the wobbly depression off the coast of South Carolina is going to wobble a little further away from our coast than we were worried about or concerned with um, early this it's morning. It's right on the edge all week. We've been following this forecast. You see the rain But you don't chances. want rain in your tailgate, right. man. They were, they were high early in the week, and then – you know, midweek they go down, then they went back up a little. And uh, and yesterday I, I took a look and sent you the screenshot, and it looked like pretty good shape. Yeah, about 60-degree game time temperature, high about 79 or 80, somewhere there about. Not a lot of humidity. Uh, that's good football weather. I'd like it to see a little bit cooler, uh, but that's that's very acceptable going the right football direction. weather. But I do think it's interesting that the Clemson fan told me, we went to watch Georgia win and then the Tigers win. And you guys played really well in the first half, and it had us all goofed up. I mean, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't relax and have fun until we realized, okay, Georgia straightened it out. Georgia got, got back into business and do, or, or do, taking care of business as business should have been taken care of. I, I want to go back down this road. Okay, everybody's awake now. We, we've been lighthearted. Um, we've talked a little bit about college football, a little bit about the Braves. Um, I'm reading or trying to read, and I'm not sure I'm – I'm interested in it because I'm so believing of it. I believe 
that we all live in Barack Obama's world. I really am convinced of that beyond a shadow of a doubt. And there are two mm. people, David Garrow and David Samuel, are hosting podcasts. I mean, they've written books. If I'm not mistaken, The Obama Factor is the book that David Samuel wrote. Um, David Garrow hosts a couple of podcasts. He's had Obama on the podcast several times. He's really having some of these folks that were instrumental in the development, if you will, of the person that became Barack Obama. And here's the, here's the argument I'm trying to make. Is Obama a mystical, mythical, political figure, or is he just the heartbeat of Chicago politics? Or is he both? Is he... Well, explain heartbeat of Chicago politics. Well, I mean, what do you mean by that? Cutthroat. By, by Rahm Emanuel, David Axelrod. Just scheming. Just everything is to play for keeps. Mm-hmm. You know, he was, he was proposed as being above the fray. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a, God, he's this mythical African-American. I mean, I'm sorry. That's the way, that's not racist. I'm not trying to be, there, there's no racial insensitivity or overtone there. He was proposed to America as this mythical African-American figure. And nobody's ever really done the deep dive. The majority of, 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 of biographies and, and I don't know, life stories of Obama have been his own. And I don't think he's honest. I think the what, what the audacity of hope, you know, the first autobiography he did. Mm-hmm. I think it's it, it's it's political fiction. And 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 Samuel and Garrow are attempting to do um, what has not been done today. I think people are beginning to accept that we live in this post Obama world. That he was indeed a transformational American president, not in policy arrangements. I mean, his policies. The majority failed, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, remember the red line with Syria and some of the other. I mean, it it, it was a mixed bag, and most presidents are uh, somewhat of a mixed bag. But but there's 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 a debate happening amongst historians now that has me very curious and interested. I've said it before. I always knew that my way of seeing the world had political opposition. I mean, there was no doubt about it. The day that I showed up at county council, I mean, I knew that my worldview was a worldview in contrast to good and decent people's worldview. But but Obama gets elected in 08. I got elected county council in 2004. So I'm kind of immersed in politics. I'm, you know, I'm starting to think about it. In 2008, I mean, that's when I was approached to run for lieutenant governor. I mean, the first person to ever sit me down and say, you kind of need to think about this, that would have been in in late 2008. Well, what happened in 2008? Obama gets elected. So so the majority of my political um, trajectory or or the the positive trajectory was was in, I don't know, in coordination or in at least in, 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 you know, synchronicity with with Barack Obama. As As I progressed politically, he was always the dominant figure. But but it's not like he did the check of the box. You know, we talked about these these candidates that uh, did you page at the Senate? Yeah, okay. Uh, did you clerk for a judge? Yeah, okay. Did you go to law school? Yeah, okay. Did you um, join the National Guard? Yeah, okay. Are you a member of the Rotarians, Kiwanis, and Lions Club? Yeah, okay. Uh, you see where I'm headed? 
I mean, all, all these, he's got no check in any box. I mean, he went to Harvard. But, but other than that, and, and, and I guess I'm, I'm trying to argue, is he both? I mean, is he a mystical? I mean, why do we have Donald Trump? Who gave us Donald Trump? I mean, there's a great debate in American politics. I read a lot about it. You know, is George W. Bush more to blame for Donald Trump than Barack Obama? I mean, I think that's, a, that, that's an interesting debate. No, no. Barack Obama created a, a sensation amongst regular white working people that they were under threat. They were the problem. Rujan has talked a lot about this over the last six or eight or ten years, calling in uh, to this feeble attempt at radio brilliance. And I just, I mean, th- th- there's beginning to be some, <sighs> some deep and interesting discussions about who Barack Obama is, where did he come from, what does he believe in, what does he aspire for, how involved in the running the country today is he? I mean, I even said, I mean, I read a quote this morning in, in some of this reporting. I mean, I read a quote this morning that um, Obama, when asked about a third term, he said, I mean, if I could wear sweatpants. But, and, and the interesting thing he says, guys, is I find the work most interesting and fascinating. I mean, that's, that's his words, not mine. I mean, obviously, the, you know, the, 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 the Constitution uh, doesn't allow him to run for a third term. But, but he said, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I would be interested in some sort of arrangement that allowed me to uh, stay in my basement with, with a screen in front, you know, in my sweats, because I find the work so fascinating. That, that's, that's his word, not mine. Um, and I'm just trying to put together, the, I mean, I'm trying to do from afar what, what David Garrow and uh, David Samuel are trying to do up close. Go, go to, I mean, if you're interested in that, go to the Obama factor. I mean, just Google the Obama factor, and and it looks to me that people are beginning to accept that we live in this post-Obama world. What if we live in a post-Obama world? Who is Obama? Because we've never dug into that. I mean, the media just said no. I mean, they, they wouldn't even go there. Well, I mean, the, the media accepting him as this mystical African-American that, that we just cannot do a deep dive on. I mean, it's time. You know the issue with slavery. This is a chance for America to right its wrong. And we're not going to treat him like we've ever treated anybody else. And the majority of Americans, and here, here's the interesting part to me, the majority of Americans know so little about Barack Obama, but he's one of the most recognizable presidents in American history. Didn't Limbaugh used to, did he refer to that as the Obama doctrine? Well, probably. I think that's yeah, how he described it. It would be similar to it. that. It would be the Obama doctrine, the Obama factor. The point I'm trying to make is one of the most coincidental American presidents in our history, we know nothing about Still don't know anything much at all about Barack Obama. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. You know, I've been thinking about this a little bit since you brought this subject up, which I was not, I mean, this is out of left field. <laughs> I didn't know you were going to go here this morning. That's usually the way it I is. I didn't either until late last night or late yesterday afternoon when I began rant, reading some of this. I've not watched the podcast with um with David Garrow and David Samuel but, but I, what, what I read, I did read a little bit of the transcript, and it is a, and here's what I think is happening, Rev. I think people are, well, I'll say this. I'm convinced that Barack Obama is unbelievably intelligent. I think he is absolutely honest when he says he finds politics fascinating. I think he's a devout communist. Mm. 
I mean, I, I think he is a devout communist. He's an American apologist. So, so we, the people, elected uh, a, a devout communist, an American apologist, to lead a movement to transform the nation. And he said and, he was going to do that. Well, I mean, and I told you yesterday something I'd read. Um, I mean, I think he won. I mean, I think, I think John Fetterman is, is the rest and residue of Barack Obama, transforming America. Uh, now, now, Joe Manchin and Dick Durbin and some of the other Democrats are upset by the Fetterman rule or exception, so to speak. And it's not about the casual society in a blue blazer or not. I mean, this is, um, I mean, I, I just think he's a devout communist. He's an American apologist. And we don't know anywhere near as much about where he came from and how he got there as we should. And it seems now that people who are inspired to do that kind of work or more curious or more curious to do it. Because once again, I've argued for two years that Joe Biden's not running the country. I mean, nobody believes that. Any serious-minded person knows that there are Obama acolytes within the bowels of the White House running the executive branch. I mean, they are. You know, um, it, it's kind of the perfect world for Biden. I mean, for uh, Obama. you got a decrepit, demented old man that you can blame everything on <laughs> while you're in your sweats doing the fascinating work of governing the nation's affairs. And, and, and the point I'm trying to make is we're living in this post-Obama world where, um, you know, communism is. Now, now, once again, I'm not saying Democrats are devout communists. I think Obama is a devout communist. But, but before Obama, what percentage of Democrat primary voters would have answered honestly uh, that they prefer socialism over over capitalism. Even if they believed that, they would have kept it to themselves. Right. They, they couldn't win. Uh, Obama was kind of a liberator to that. And um, once again, an American apologist. I mean, it's hard to deny that. I mean, I'm speculating on the devout communist. I mean, that's my hunch. Well, I remember some speeches he would make that, you know, overseas on his apology tours well, that it, would just blow my mind. Well, I think he told you he's an American apologist. I'm arguing from afar that he's a devout communist. I mean, he's told you over and over and over again that, that he's an American apologist. It's just it's so interesting that he's left such a mark on the politics of today. And and now historians and, and academics are beginning to say, maybe we, we didn't dig in the way we should have on the front end, but maybe it's time we dig in now. Hmm. Let's go to the phone. Here is Jesse in Florence. Good morning, Jesse. Hey, um, I'm not going to talk about Obama because I voted for him. But at any rate, I want to talk about something that happened in Florence two days ago. I'm in a Walmart, six feet away from this guy. It's probably well over six feet tall. He's got on a Vietnam veteran hat. And I heard him say to the Walmart employee in a very aggressive tone, I'll meet you out in the parking lot. And I thought, what in the world's going on? And I get the attention of the Walmart employee, and I shake my head. And the young man backs away. He takes a step back. Now, he's not real close to the guy to start with, but he backs away from the Vietnam veteran. So we get our little stuff, and we go outside. Well, it's time for the employee's break. So he walks out the store first. I walk out behind him, and before I could get to the door, here comes the Vietnam veteran. He's passing me, 
and I noticed something in his pocket. I said, oh, my gosh, he's got a knife in his pocket. And he's threatened that employee. And I spoke to the girls, the uh, the um, Walmart girls, as I was going out the door. And I said, did you realize that man's got a knife? They said, oh, no, it's not a knife. It's a gun with a clip on it. I thought, oh, my word. So I go outside, find the little guy, the little Walmart employee, and apologize to him for sticking my nose in his business. And the Walmart security girl walks up. I guess she thought I was fussing with the little fellow. And we tell her what happens. And she said, well, he's, he was in, this Vietnam veteran was part in a um, handicap spot. And she said, well, he's leaving. Then all of a sudden she realizes he's not leaving. He's circling the parking lot. So she tells the little Walmart guy, get in the car and roll your window up because he had those blackened windows. And so I hightailed I it to my car. I called Walmart's number and spoke with a girl that, you know, and told her what had happened. She said she was going to make a report on it. But she said it definitely was not Walmart policy for guns to be able to be brought into the store. Well, it's very evident if the, the girls at the door knew this man had guns on him, and that what I thought was a knife was an actual clip attached to a gun. Walmart's policy is not being followed in Florence. Thank you, Jesse. Then, Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Someone's on the other line. Let's go there. They're obviously concealed carry laws, and, and businesses have the have the right to allow or not allow concealed carry. Uh, but that's obviously a, a law enforcement matter. Right? A, law, and, a law enforcement and, and Walmart and, and, matter. And a company policy. Yeah. Let's uh, go to the phone. Jason and Marion. Good morning, Jason. Hey, good morning, Kent. Good morning to Dave. Um, you were just mentioning about the um the Fetterman rule or whatever. And, um, if that's the case, I think um there should be a Lauren Bobert rule, and she should be able to rob, be allowed to wear what she wants to wear. And I'll just leave it at that. Um, Kent, I want to get your take on uh, this whole Russell Brand thing. I know it's really not political, but I mean it, it's kind of in our wheel wheelhouse and about how the left and these certain companies are coming after him because of these allegations, supposedly sexual allegations. We don't know if they're true. Um, and, you know, by no means is he, you know, some far-right conservative. I I know he's come along more center, I guess, if you will, and he he, he calls it like it is, and if something isn't right, he'll, he'll speak his mind. But I'm kind of curious what your whole take is on this, and, you know, they – some of the companies wanted Elon Musk to, um, you know, play, monetize him on Twitter, but Elon Musk refused, and now they're now they're all mad at Elon. And if you could just speak about that, I'd love to hear your take. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate that. We touched on that a little bit the day before yesterday. Um, Russell Brand was skeptical of Big Pharma. I mean, a lot of his messages were, you know, the uh, the, the indoctrination of the masses. Uh, the fact that America was, uh, you know, the American government had convinced a large percentage of its population that the vaccine was safe, didn't have side effects, everybody needed to take it from six months old uh, to 90 years old. And Brand said, that's absurd. I mean, that, you know, the, the science doesn't say that. I mean, there's that, that we, we should be skeptical of Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson & Johnson when they work in concert with the government. And that didn't suit the left narrative. I mean, that didn't suit big government's 
narrative. So but what happens is, I mean, as long as you're living in the cocoon of leftism and liberalism, there's a degree of protection there. And you can have these allegations, and as long as they're not, un- excuse me, as long as they're uncorroborated and un- unsubstantiated, y- you're good. I mean, that you know, innocent until proven guilty. Uh, <laughs> but 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 if you cross big pharma, if you cross big media, if you cross big government, then all of a sudden th- those accusations find uh, kind of different footing, and they take on a different a different personality. I believe that Russell Brand, and and I don't want to go as far as to say he's a convert. Um, I have no idea about the allegations and my concern or, or my, my, I guess, sticking up for Russell brand is not, um, innocent to proven guilty, uh, but it is that because I believe fundamentally that you, you, when YouTube and Google decided to deplatform and demonetize based on allegations, I mean, that, that, that to me runs opposite of due process of the law, you know, innocent until proven guilty. Well, I mean, these accusations have been made, and they're they're old accusations. I mean, I think they're, what, 10, 12, 15 years old. I mean, Russell Brand's a stand-up comedian who doesn't believe he's had a one-night fling every now and then. I mean, I have no idea with who, how old, where, uh, but would anybody really be surprised if Russell Brand had groupies? I mean, let's just stew on that on a Friday morning. If, if I said, hey, Russell Brand has groupies or Russell Brand doesn't have groupies, <laughs> What, what team you on? I mean, I'm on the he has groupies team, and, and, I, and I would probably find um, it believable that Brand may have, um, you know, um, slept with a, uh, a female groupie from time to time. have no idea what age, what marital status, or whatever. That's just, I'm not, I'm not condoning or condemning it. It is what it is. I mean, that, that's the life. You know, um, I'm not saying sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but Russell Brand kind of embodies and represents um, some of that. But all that was fine. I mean, all those accusations were um, as they were until Brand began questioning some of these organized elements in our in our discourse that you just don't cross. You don't cross big pharma. You don't cross big government. You don't cross big media. And Russell Brand, um, I don't want to say saw the light, but Russell Brand appeared to uh, leave that liberal bubble and cocoon and and venture out into being critical of forces that you got to be careful in being in being critical critical of um I think brand sees big government for what it is I think he sees big pharma for what it is I think he sees big media for what it is and he finally spoke out loudly and proudly about about those things and he gained an audience a very non-traditional audience for stand-up comedian. Um, you know, Brand's audience, I read, I mean, some of the demo research that I read, uh, a little bit left of center, center and right of center. I mean, right-wingers don't, you know, watch Brand's podcast. Left-wingers don't watch him. I think they probably did until he took some of these controversial stances of questioning big government, big media, and big pharma. But uh, but once again, my problem is not. I mean, the allegations are the allegations and we need to have a pursuit of the truth. I mean, did Brand, um, you know, uh, did did Brand sexually harass a female or not? I mean, at the end of the day, that question needs to be answered. But Brand was demonetized and deplatformed based on allegations, and I just think that's wrong in America. Due process of the law should supersede. Um, I, I'll say this: if Russell Brand were accused 
of sexually harassing a 16-year-old female, which is what he's been accused of, but he were advocating for big pharma, big media, big government, he'd still be on YouTube. I mean, he would not have been deplatformed or demonetized, but because he's taken these, you know, um, opposition to the left stances, we'll, we'll teach you a lesson. Yeah. And I think that's, a target. What's, that's what's happening. Now, is he a convert? I don't know. I don't have any idea if he's a convert. Some say he's just, you know, found a niche. Well, I mean, that's what businesses do. They find a niche. But, uh, but I think he's sincerely, I mean, I've watched some of Brand's podcast about Big Pharma, and he is somewhat educated and informed on the subject uh, we're discussing. I John- think if, uh, if he didn't convert, that these allegations wouldn't have come up at all. I think this is just kind of the, oh, you're, you're out of the hen house. Uh, some, some girlfriend you had 20 years ago goes, well, I didn't like it at the time that one time, you know. Well, I mean, that's just, well, hey, well, why didn't go? it come up before? Well, I mean, when I say convert, yeah, I, mean, I doubt Brand is a fire-breathing conservative. <laughs> I mean, sure, I, sure. I doubt very seriously if he's a card-carrying member of the Heritage Foundation and the Cato Institute. But he had some things to say uh, in relation to big pharma, big media, big government. And, and, and you know, that when you take that route, there's a target on your back. And, and once again, if Russell Brand were being accused by a 16, 17, 18-year-old female of sexual harassment, but he kind of um, towed the company line, he would still be on YouTube, he would still be collecting his money, and he would not have been deplatformed. 843-661-0937, back in a few. 843-661-0937. We could say it's a casual Friday. We'll ref- It's a Fetterman Friday. Let's sort of stay in that, right? <laughs> That's right? Instead of a casual Friday, it's a Fetterman Friday. Did you see the video of him? I mean, he was, I guess he was, oh, whatever, when they walk up, when they get up to the, do they oversee the Senate? Do they run the Senate for yeah. certain senators take yeah, turns? Yeah, I don't know he's what the you presiding call that. officer. Presid- okay, mm-hmm. that, you, you should know that. I guess you, you know what that's called. I was one of them. <laughs> but you wore your you wore your robe. Mm-hmm. I mean, you knew mm-hmm. the dress code, and mm-hmm. you you stuck to it. But but he was up on there presiding over the Senate, wearing those darn shorts and sweats and whatever. That that's embarrassing to me. It, it's very Terrible. embarrassing. I mean, it, it's it's um he's a slob, and and the Democrats are defending a slob. I mean that that's he's a slob. And, and here's the insulting part of this: he he comes from an affluent family. I mean, they've taken care of him all of his life. That's his interpretation of us. I mean, he's trying to he's trying to be a representation of what he perceives the regular guy to be, and that's his. I mean, in other words, um, trying to be relatable. Yeah, I want to I want to be one of you. Well, I mean, we we may dress like that at Polly's Island, we may dress like that on the farm in Lake City or Pamplico, but we don't dress like that. I mean, it never crossed my mind to go to a county council meeting. Without a suit and tie, it never crossed my mind to walk in the Senate chamber without being respectful of the decorum. And I despise decorum. <laughs> I know you do. I mean, I despise pomp and circumstance, but I don't get to make those rules. I mean, those rules are much larger than I am. Those formalities and traditions are much larger than I am. And I told you during the break what I would, what I'd do, and I mean it sincerely. <laughs> I, I wish you were a senator just well, so I, you'd do this. I, I would walk up to Fetterman today, and I'd say, hey, dude, either you put a suit on or I'm going to bust your big ass. <laughs> I mean, somebody's got he, – he's a man-child. You'd make him cry. And though. somebody's got to talk to him. I don't care if he's 6'8 or not. 
I mean, I, I would tell him, you, you're you going to play by the rules that everybody always has, or don't be a senator. And, and respect your job and respect I mean, your exactly. constituents if you and respect to, the institution. On your farm, at your beach house, being on vacation, at the gym, wear what you want to wear. But you are a United States senator. And, and the respect and traditions of this body, uh, I, I don't care what our, I mean, I know what the public opinion is of the House of Representatives. I mean, they know what it is. It's 14%. 14% of Americans believe Congress does a good job. But but at least you can honor some of the respect of of the body and traditions and history history of the body and I just think it's it's it, it it's wild to me that they're making the exception for this guy who is a slob. I mean he's not he's not of high character, he's not of high virtue. And the insulting part to me is his wardrobe once again is how he perceives us to be. He's an affluent dude. But, but he wants to be a regular guy, and he thinks regular people, you know, kind of kind of dress that. Well, we do dress like that when we walk in the grocery store at the beach or we're working, you know, cutting a ditch bank on the farm. I mean, I, I, go, I, I, mean, I was as ill-informed about the formalities of politics as anybody you could ever find in this world. But, but I, 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 even I accepted the responsibility of, of learning, okay, um, you walk in this building and you don't do it without having this on. And it, I mean, you, you want to get real philosophical? Fetterman is the latest example of a nation in decline. I mean, it, he is an embodiment of a nation in decline. And, and, and Schumer didn't have the gumption to say, hey, dude, put a suit on. And he or should don't have. Come in. Sure, he should have. Absolutely, he should have. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning. Uh, you know what really, the bottom line, his kids, have you ever seen a bigger bunch of weirdos, goofballs, lowlife, and just overall daggle, daggle crap as you see in the United States of America Senate and House of Representatives? And he's just a representative. I mean, every day, I mean, if you just, I mean, that's a daggle, really, they should lock the doors on that place and just, and just keep them there. Because every one of them is a bag of either a nutcase or a scumbag. I mean, it, just look at them. If you, I mean, think about start going through every one of these senators and members of the House, and you say, dear Lord, that's one messed up individual. But let me tell you about the, the whole thing, though. If, God forbid, if I were ever at a Walmart, which I won't be, and, there, and a shooting starts taking place, guess who I will go find? I'm about a guy with a Vietnam veteran's hat on his head that's got him a has got him a dang old uh, a gun, three knives and five clips and maybe one in his ankle thing, because that's where the guy not somebody that's gonna, you know, be able to respond. But that being said, another thing I don't like is the idea that just because you have a, you're a Vietnam veteran that you're supposed to be some kind of a nutcase. I've got a lot of friends that went to Vietnam, a lot of them are dead now, my cousin went. Far from a nutcase. And another thing about a, a person that's in the military, chances are they never do see combat. You got to have a certain amount of support personnel. Personnel. Everybody in the army in 1969 wasn't walking up and down the Hoochie Bend Trail. Of course, you know the um, you know, fighting, fighting this, fighting that. I think the army fought the uh, Viet Cong more, and I think the Marines were fighting the regular NBA. But anyway, that's the part about that. But here's another question, Ken. As long, as long as you're a good fascist Democrat, I guess it's okay 
to rape a woman, and a woman's okay with being raped as long as she's being raped or sexually harassed by a fascist left-wing Democrat. But as soon as uh, you find out, oh, wow, I got tricked. That guy told me he was like I am, and we had sex together, and now I found out I slept with the enemy. Well, the only way I would sleep with the enemy is if he raped me. You didn't start hearing any of that stuff about Bill Cosby until he started making comments that uh, that the left didn't like. So, you know, I don't know. You got to sit there. You ask these questions. I mean, you know, and, and I'll tell you what. Everybody needs to be a little more careful about what they do nowadays, too. And I, on my last note, I was pretty proud of Dion Sanders for staying, for taking up for the minority uh, in college football. That uh, that uh, oh, that morning, uh, they had that hit Saturday and everything. He's getting death threats, you know. Now, are they, is he the only person in college football that's ever made a late hit? or maybe made an aggressive hit and everything else, and they're giving him death threats. What are the death threats that would be if it happened the other way around? You know, I have one of my left-wing clients come in, never said anything in six years like this. He goes, did you see that dirty, dirty hit that happened with that Colorado State guy hitting a guy from Colorado? Could have killed him. They should, they should expel him from football. He should never be able to play again. I said, well, I wonder where that came from. So I pulled up the video, and I saw what LeBron James and all those guys were saying the same thing. So I looked at it closer, and said, oh, that explains it. It was a white guy. He needs to be he needs to be hung, or at the very least, thrown out of college football for life. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. John Fetterman has missed about 35% of all votes since he joined, since he joined the Senate. Um, the only person who's missed more is Diane Feinstein. I think Feinstein's at about 50%. I mean, they wheel her in. You know, they kind of um say, yeah, now. Say, no, now. And she does. I mean, that's kind of what reduced uh, the U.S. Senate to. The, the interesting part of this is what the voters of Pennsylvania think. I mean, it doesn't matter what I think. I mean, I, I've expressed my opinion, and, um, and, and you've expressed yours. But at the end of the day, the voters of Pennsylvania – and what, four years, three years, will decide whether or not Fetterman goes back to the U.S. Senate. And, I mean, he's, he's obviously got issues. And, you know, and I, I would agree, Ref, to some, at some level, if a guy gets elected, or a lady for that matter, gets elected to the Senate, and in the middle of their term as a senator, they have some medical mishap. I mean, I understand that. I think, you you know, they, 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 they won the election. I mean, they, they are a representative of the people. Something happened. Um, during their term, and you make accommodations. I'm not opposed to that. I mean, I think you do make a Somebody gets in a bad car wreck, and they're they're disabled to be there, unable to be there because of their their, their current situation. I think you make exemptions. I think you yeah. let them vote from a hospital. That bed. makes common sense. Sure. I mean, that, you know that that's. I mean, it's not that I'm not trying to be unreasonable, but but you voted for a guy that that you knew was not capable of of doing the work necessary for a U.S. senator. I mean, he's an oddball to begin with. I mean, he's a very odd person to begin with. But Pennsylvania um, had a choice between John Fetterman and Dr. Oz, and they chose um, a John Fetterman. The people of Pennsylvania certainly are entitled to pick their their representative. So Fetterman gets there. I mean, remember the debate when he and Oz, and it was just like, I mean, I think he began the debate by saying, you know, hello and good night, all of the same mm-hmm. sentence. I mean, he wanted to get that done with. But, but you know, I think the um, – 
the voters of Pennsylvania demanded some sort of of debate, so he agreed, and he didn't. I mean, he didn't. He didn't acquit himself well. I mean, he really, really struggled, and it was sad. I mean, it was sad to watch him, you know, struggle with trying to answer these questions, and and then he and his family, you know, they on the uh, inauguration day, they make their way to Washington. In all honesty, w- with all due respect, they look like the Adams family, you know, c- kind of um traipsing around the uh, the Capitol building. Um, and he, it's obvious that his doctors lied when they said, you know, he'll recur, he'll recover in no time. I mean, he's on schedule, he's on target, his medication is working. Um, I mean, he has his moments of coherence, but for the most part, he is not able to communicate as clearly as you would expect a U.S. Senator, um, to, and then they make an exemption, not because of his disability. In, In other words, if Fetterman said, Hey, um, can I get a teleprompter? Can I, can I, I mean, I've got this visual assistance um, app that I use on my phone. Can I get some sort of electronic device at my desk that allows me to do my job uh, more proficient? Yeah, but of course, I I wouldn't make that accommodation. I mean, I think you're crazy to vote for a guy who had a stroke, not after he became a senator, but before. I mean, if I'm a voter, I'm going like, dude, I was for you, but you've had a stroke. It's obvious you've got some serious cognitive issues. I think in your best interest and mine. I'm voting for the other guy or not voting at all. But, but you know, Democrats and Republicans, one wants to, to be in charge of the other. So he gets to Washington, and, and now they make accommodations, not with a teleprompter or some sort of a visual aid to help him speak easily or more freely or better or, or communicate better with the public. No, it's about him wearing gym shorts and hoodies or some kind of, um, I mean, yesterday, I mean, with, with, you know, I, I spent my life dealing with truck drivers. I mean, he looked like a truck driver. Had kind of a button-down shirt, untucked, um, some kind of socks and tennis shoes, and uh, it's, it's just—it's bizarre. I mean, it's crazy, and it's uh, to me, it's 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 a symptom of a nation in decline. I mean, it really is. When when Chuck Schumer says to, I mean, Fetterman can dress like this, but nobody on his staff can. I mean, if you're in the Senate chamber or, or you know, in in some of the um the lobby area of the Senate is still proper dress code, dress code. And, and I'm not one of these fuddy duddies. I'm not one of these sticklers for, for decorum. I mean, I, you know, I, I think we kind of sort of go overboard with some of that at times, but, but I, I just think to allow a guy to conduct the, 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 to transact the American people's political business in a hoodie and gym shorts is, is just beneath the dignity the office deserves. And, here we are, you know, and I think Manchin's going to, uh, Manchin will file or introduce legislation Monday that changes back to the former, um, you know, dress code. And I think Durbin and some others, uh, I, if I'm the Republicans, I don't say anything. I mean, I, I just don't. I think the optic of a goofball and a slob walking in with a D beside his name is good. That for the says Demo- enough. Yeah, but to me, that says enough. Yeah. So so the, the leadership of the Democrats are willing to allow this goofball slob to enter the, the historic Senate chamber in a, you know, a T-shirt or a hoodie or, you know, sweatpants and tennis shoes, then, you know, but, but, but really and truly, It'll be interesting to watch the voters of Pennsylvania decide whether he's worthy of a second term or not. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Ed in the PD. Good morning, Ed. Morning, fellas. How y'all doing? Morning. 
Back in 98, whenever the first big financial crisis hit, a good friend of mine, he's usually a calm, level-headed fellow, but he came up and he was, you could tell they, they hit him hard. He told me, he said, two words to solve every problem in this world. I said, what's that? He said, honesty and respect. And that's the last thing you get from anybody nowadays. You know, when you're dealing with Walmart, they'll tell you to call 1-800-WALMART. And that's it. I had experience with them. I ain't stepped foot in one in, I think it's 11 years. So I'm, I'm a, a breeze on that. And getting to Obama, I remember shortly after the George Floyd uh problem started Obama shows up on Good Morning America and he says this is not a national problem this is a worldwide problem and I'm calling for worldwide civil unrest now could you imagine what they'd say if Trump said that and I never heard any word opposition y'all have a good day thank you appreciate it I, I mean, to me we, we could do a month's worth of radio on Obama. And, and I've said this for a couple of years now. The, the unknowns are more interesting than the knowns. What we don't know about Obama, I find more intriguing and fascinating than what we do know about Obama. Um, we know he's an American apologist. I mean, he's told you that out of his own mouth on several different occasions as the American president. I mean, he ran as a centrist. Remember, guys, in 2008, Barack Obama ran opposed to same-sex marriage. I mean, he said what he had to say to win. I mean, the nation was, I mean, the, the, even the centrist in America in 2008, which wasn't but 15 years ago. We're talking like it was 75 years ago. I mean, we fast-tracked. You know, I've said it before. The, the, the people that should be most angry in the world are those who fought for uh, and advocated for same-sex marriage. You didn't get your day in the sun. I mean, we blew past that into gender fluidity and transgenderism. And, I mean, you didn't get your proper due. Um, but but he ran in 08 as a centrist, and the American public bought it. And, I mean, he ran as this, well, I mean, he, a lot of people still perceive Obama as this mystical, mythical, political figure. Um, he's kind of the, I mean, he's the, uh, what, what am I trying? He's, he's the wizard behind the curtain. I mean, he's so much intellectually and morally and, 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 and superior than, than every, and, and I think he's unbelievably intelligent. I mean, I think Barack Obama, if he took an IQ test, he'd be in the top one percentile. I mean, I really believe that, um, he's gifted in, in intellectually, but, but he's a devout communist. Now, now he's never said I'm an devout communist. He has said, I am a, an American apologist. I mean, you don't have to, decipher much to, to, to get there, but, but I've determined that he's a devout, um, communist. He's a radical, uh, he's an extreme radical. And, and, and I think you can be a cutthroat Chicago style politician and a mystical mythical, you know, African-American politician. That's kind of, um, that's the way I perceive him. But anyway, I think that what's happening today in America, and I think the two people that are doing more of this than anybody and David Garrow and David Samuel are, are beginning to ask questions that we've never asked about uh, the former president. Who is he? 
What is he about? You remember his college records were sealed, right? I mean, everything's been sealed about him, Rev. I mean, he's, he's a, once again, that's why I use the word he's this mystical figure. Mm. But, but we live in a post-Obama political world. Racial tension is as hot as it's ever been in America. I mean, I, I look at polls. I mean, the, the polling clearly shows that we are a deeply divided nation when it comes to race. Deeply divided, um, intensely divided, powder keg-like divided. And, I mean, I, you know, th- there's a fair debate. And, I, and I've, I've kind of, um, I mean, I've, I've gone back and forth on this. Um, did George W. Bush give us Donald Trump or did Barack Obama give us Donald Trump? Uh, the answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> but, but, but once again, what is the Trump base? The white working class. Why were the white working class so aggressive in supporting Donald Trump? They felt like Barack Obama considered them not a political opponent, but rather an enemy, a mortal foe that must be dealt with as enemies and mortal foes are dealt with. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Here's an interesting excerpt from uh, the Obama factor, David Garrow, David Samuel, doing some pretty serious work on who Barack Obama is, what sort of influence he's had on our lives. Here's a quote. You ready? There was something about this fictional character that he created actually becoming president that helped precipitate the disaster that we're all living through today. That's the Obama factor. That's kind of, I mean, that, that's the point I'm trying to argue, that there was something about this fictional character that, that the media created um, actually, be, I mean, he became president, and and a lot of the policies and, and and the place the country finds itself now is the the rest and residue of the Obama presidency. We we said early this morning, and I and I believe this. I mean, I I don't say it for you know hyperbole or to provoke. I think Barack Obama has a a tremendous influence on the government today. I think Barack Obama probably has more of an influence on the day-to-day grind of the executive branch than Joe Biden does. And it's really a perfect scenario. Um, you've got a demented and, and decrepit old man who really doesn't know what to do, never did know what to do, but now he's oblivious to what's going on. So you've got these acolytes that, that ascribe to this, you know, I mean, I don't want to say they treat Obama as a messiah, but they kind of do. I mean, there, there was some weirdness there. I mean, I'll accept there's some weirdness in the loyalty some have to Trump. I mean, I think you'll accept that, Rev. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some irrationale that goes along with some people's loyalty um, to Donald Trump. But, but I don't think Trump's ever been looked at as messianic. I mean, there, there's no doubt he's a disruptor and a political blunt instrument, but I don't think anybody's ever said Trump is some political messiah. Well, I remember when Obama came on the scene and, and, I mean, he gave a speech and said, we're the ones we've been waiting on. I mean, today is the day the ocean ceased to rise. I mean, that, that's, that, that's kind of a messianic complex in itself, isn't it? But, but we're living in a world that has been unbelievably shaped by a guy that we don't know much about, still don't know much about. Let's go to the phone. Kathy and Dylan. Good morning, Kathy. You're on the air. Good morning. I love to hear you talk. You're just straightforward, to the point, um, about the slob John Fetterman. I had a nephew who was seven foot tall. He worked for the protection division, and then he passed away as a Capitol Police. 
And if uh, Fetterman needs a donation, I've got plenty of suits and button-down shirts and cufflinks and ties and pants that I would be very willing to donate if the poor guy needs some clothes. <laughs> Thank you, Kathy. Appreciate that. Thank you for the call and appreciate the offering of, of some clothes. That would be kind of an interesting marketing ploy, right? I mean, why wouldn't a big and tall shop, you know, run an ad campaign saying, if John needs some help, we're willing to, we're willing to help here. And, um, give him some tailored yeah, suits. And, and I, I think Rebel Defend, I mean, I'm ne- I've never been one of these fuddy duddies on pomp and circumstance. I mean, he, he likes it far more I, than I do. Uh, but, but I, I do, do I, but I think once you accept the responsibility of being a Senator, that there's a certain degree of respect that you owe to the body. Uh, it's a little bit like I had a buddy of mine back in the day when, and this, I mean, we, we, it's proof we're becoming more informal. There was a day that certain places wouldn't allow you to play golf without a collar on your shirt. And I remember a buddy of mine, um, showing his butt, you know, no, I don't do that. I was, well, I mean, the people that founded the game and play the game and run the clubs, that's the way they want it. And if you don't want to wear a collar on your shirt and, and they require, then find something else to do. Go bowling, you know, go, go, um, go to a football game, go, go play slow pitch softball. But the people go who are in Senate. charge, well, yeah, there, there you <laughs> go. go. Get go, elected to the yeah, Senate. Run for Senate. Let's, let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. Yeah, the problem is the majority of Democrats don't care. I mean, Betterman's just fine with them. You know, like I said before, hell, they voted in a dead guy that died six months before or three months before the election. Um, Up until Obama ran for president, his books talked about him being a, a foreign national uh, succeeding in America because up until his presidency, it didn't matter whether he was born in the United States or not, or a naturalized citizen. So they they took all of that off of all his books. But I've seen copies of his original books that says a citizen of Kenya, but that's where all his family's from, but I guess that don't matter, but Yesterday we had a conversation about the uh, the military holdups and what Tommy Coverville was doing, and that's unprecedented. Well, no, it's not. They're they're starting to approve the military generals the way they're supposed to do it. Bring them to the floor, vote on them. You know, it takes a little while, but they've gotten to where they want to hurry up everything. They'll take a hundred of them at a time. And, and approve them all, even though half of them suck. So all Turville's doing is saying, look, you, you change the law. And I've spent 26 years in the military, so I have a little bit of idea about this abortion thing in the military. It doesn't happen very often to start with. But what they're doing is they want to pay the woman if she's stationed in South Carolina and, and she has to have an abortion. They want to pay her to go somewhere else and then pay her time off and then pay her way back. That The Hyde Amendment doesn't allow that. You can take time off yourself. You can go have an abortion and come back. But I heard the other day South Carolina didn't even put six weeks into their law when they passed the abortion law, so they got to go back and amend that. Every... Every, uh, 
court case I've heard on abortion, like in Tennessee and Texas, they're, they're fussing about ectopic pregnancies. You know, doctors don't want to do it because they'll get in trouble. See, remember when we first had this discussion and I said we need to define what an abortion is because the Democrats have changed the definition so much? Well, they're using ectopic pregnancies or pregnancies as a excuse for 40-week abortion. And they need to really treat us like we're children and say, okay, ectopic pregnancy is when it's in the, you know, fallopian tube and it'll kill the mother if it goes on. But Republicans make me so mad they they are good at snatching defeat out of the jaws of victory. And they're doing the same thing in Congress. We ought to put up something that says, if you don't balance the budget, you don't get to run for re-election, period. Now, that would get their hair on fire. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. You know, I still ask the question, and I don't know if anybody's answered this. If four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks or 10 weeks or 12 weeks is the date, where is that date from? I mean, when does the clock start? I mean, it certainly doesn't start the night of, you know, if a man and a woman have consensual sex and the woman becomes pregnant. Uh, I'm not, I mean, you know, somebody in the healthcare industry could answer that a lot. But I mean, when does the clock begin? I mean, if, if, if we're debating six or 10 or 12 weeks, six weeks from when? I mean, it, is, it, is it when a woman misses something that happens? I, I don't know. I, mean, I don't have any clarity at all with that. And, and maybe we can get someone to answer, but, but I'd love to know. Uh, if somebody out there's read and understand better than I do, six weeks from when, eight weeks from when, 10 weeks from when, 12 weeks um, from when, and, and I think Joe's, I mean, he explained it exactly right. I mean, Turveyville is not saying a woman in the military can't have an abortion. I mean, they can take PTO. They can pay for their travel. They can go to a place. Um, they can recover. Uh, you know, if, if, a, if a woman is stationed in South Carolina and she's 10 weeks pregnant and New York allows a woman to have an abortion up to 16 weeks, she can get in her car. She can apply for personal time off. She can go to New York, have an abortion. She can rest however long her personal time off allows her to rest and recover, come back and do her job. But, but the, the Democrats and the Democrat leadership at the Pentagon, they want the government, you, the taxpayer, I mean, the taxpayers paying for a woman to go have an abortion, all her travel expenses incurred. And, and I mean, the media is not going to tell that story. I mean, the media says that Turbeville is putting the, uh, the military at threat, the country at risk because they won't, you know, allow the, the, um, the approval of these generals and officers and whatnot um, that's just not the truth. Turbyville's um, stance is principled on taxpayers don't need to be paying for women to have abortions. I mean, I think the law precludes taxpayers from, from paying for females' abortions. This is kind of an end around. And what Turbyville is basically saying is, you know, women can still have abortions. They just have to follow protocol. They have to do it the way, um, you know, we've historically allowed women to have, have abortions and, you know, the Democrats are saying, no, that's not the way we want it done. We want the woman to get certain. I mean, it'll be, it would be an additional period of time off and the travel expenses incurred would be funded by the American taxpayer. I mean, if you, if you really argue the point, I think Turbeville's position becomes far more popular. I don't know a lot of people 
that believe the government or the taxpayer should pay for women to have abortions. I just don't. I mean, I bumped into a lot of liberals in my life, especially, I mean, I bumped into a lot of Democrats, some liberals. I don't know any Democrat that believes a woman's abortion should be paid for by taxpayers. I do know some uh, liberals that believe that, but there's a, you know, somewhat of a difference in, in modern day Democrats and liberals, not much, but, but a little bit of daylight between the two. Let's go to the phone. Stacy in Hartsville. Hi, you're on the air. Good morning. Okay. Uh, my opinion on the, on the abortion question is this. Since I agree that, you know, nobody has answered the question, but why don't we let the, um, why don't we let the churches that are backing the Democrats answer that question? I've never understood myself how a church in general in, in in politics, can back a dead horse. I mean, they they want to. Oh yes, oh yes, they're a Democrat. They're a Democrat. We got to vote for them. Our morals are gone. Come on, guys. I I just think that I think that's a joke and lie. Somebody needs to answer the question. But my opinion, one more opinion today. I think that. The only reason Obama, and I know this is far-fetched, was president in 2008 is because the Republicans were riding a dead horse. And they were riding a dead horse when they could have changed. And I think today we could change the election that's fixing to happen. We, and, yeah, Trump, I think, I'd love to see Trump win it. I don't think it's going to happen. But I think the Republicans are riding a dead horse. And I think what we ought to do, but we can't. We can't band together and say, okay, you know what? We're going to go out and split the vote on the Democrats. We're not going to worry about the Republicans. We're just going to let the Republican Party go where it pleases. We just going to go out, jump across the line, and we're going to vote. We're going to vote for some no name Democrat just to split the vote. Y'all have a good day. Thank you. Appreciate that. 843 6610937. Let's go to the phone. Someone else there? Joe in Florence. Hello, Joe. You're on. Uh, yeah, good morning. Uh, I, I'm not a healthcare professional. Um, maybe I'm more of a philosophical professional. But to me, there's really only two choices from a, from a, a belief, a religion, uh, you know, kind of a spiritual point of view. You either believe that life begins at conception, and I can respect that, or you believe that life begins when a baby exits its mother's body. Any of this time before conception and physical birth, I think is just a political argument. And it really is just some kind of ridiculous negotiation that has nothing to do with the fact that uh, the bigger answer has to be when people meet their maker. You know, if you believe in any kind of God at all, you really don't have to answer to your doctor or you don't have to answer to your uh, representative or governor or senator. You need to kind of answer on Judgment Day what you did with your life. And as such, it really comes down to conception or birth. And six weeks, nine weeks, 15 weeks, that's just, that's just some kind of compromise that the world is trying to let people make for their own conscience or their own just uh, facility. So that's how I see it anyway. 
Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. You know, from a spiritual perspective, I mean, I'm with Joe. I understand that there there is a kind of a supernatural element there. There is a spirituality that guides you through when, when not, how, how not, where, where not, um, and about every facet of our lives, not just abortion. I mean, abortion's critically important because it is the exterminating human life. But but when it when it becomes a political issue, and I don't know that we ever had a choice. I mean, if the government doesn't decide when, how, where a woman can end a pregnancy, who does? I mean, we are a nation of laws. We defer to our lawmakers to make these decisions. And you're right. It, it seems a bit light and, and flippant to debate, D-E-B-A-T-E, life. But that's what politicians do. I mean, it's compromise, it's moderate, it's temper, it's agree to, to disagree and remain civil. I mean, all those elements and ingredients in American politics are, 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 are essential. Uh, I wish abortion was not a political issue because I believe with all my heart is it, it is a supernatural spiritual uh, reality and, and phenomenon. But it's, it, it, there, there's no other place to address it. There's no other place to... And this is the word Joe doesn't like, but it's it's just there's no other place to debate it and vote on it and decide who can and where can and how can and when can. And, yeah, some of that, that does trivialize life to some degree. But it's it, it's a nation of laws allowing lawmakers to make fundamental decisions on what we're allowed to do and not allowed to do. Take a break. Back in a few. Four three six six one zero nine three seven takes Mondays to make Fridays. We, too, I will meatloaf. This is the meatloaf. Delegation hour. We got two of three. Um, Senator Rickenbaugh did send a text saying he was out of town, wouldn't be here. Representative Lowe and Jordan are here. Good morning, fellas. How are you? Good morning. Great. So, so, so in the blind, let, let's go to the phones because I got some. I got something I want to talk to Lowe about. He sent me a screenshot this week. Jordan didn't know anything about it. We work. We connive behind your back, Jordan, because you're um, you're of less gray hair than we are. So, so we're um, we're conniving against the young buck. That that makes sense. That makes sense. I, I felt this for this. Okay. Uh, you felt je- the this jealousy okay. for a long time. The, the sensation of being left out is such a lonely, lonely <laughs> feel. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Carol in Marion. Good morning, Carol. You're on. Hey, I just got a real quick thing because I know you got the delegation there. Um, I'm not a healthcare professional, but I am a woman who's had who's been pregnant a couple of times. Um, they count the uh, the pregnancy from the the first day of the woman's last period. Okay. And that's how they get the weeks. Okay. Thank, thank you for that information. I did not know that. We've questioned when the clock starts running. So for clarity's sake, Jordan, I'll go to you first. For clarity's sake, exactly where does the state of South Carolina stand today in regards to abortion? So we measure by heartbeat here in South Carolina. And based on all the scientific studies that were presented to us when we debated this piece of legislation that can occur as early as the around the six week, maybe slightly before, but around six weeks and as far out as eight weeks. So we measure if you, if you, if an individual for female wants to go have an abortion, she goes to that, that medical facility, they would then be required to perform an ultrasound. If the fetal heartbeat is present, no, no abortion. Um, that's the simplest measurement I'm aware of um, in the states that tackle it the way we do. You know, someone said this morning, and, 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 and I'll get both of you guys to jump in here, they would rather this not be a political issue. 
Well, I'd rather it not be a political issue. Both of you would rather it not be a political issue. I'd rather it be a, a supernatural, spiritual, prayerful issue. But the reality is we are a nation of laws, and lawmakers are required to make these these sorts of decisions. It is a little um, shallow to debate life, but that's the best we can do today. And, and I don't know any other way to get to a – uh, you know, a, a, a legislative conclusion on when a woman can or cannot have an abortion. You know, unfortunately, it's it's on the list of things um, near the top of the list of things that we fight tooth and nail. Um, and I wish it wasn't so. I really sincerely wish it wasn't so. Um, but the people in this room, and I'll speak for Mike, who's not here, who's been very clear on this issue. Life is a fundamental um, cornerstone to us. And we have voted for pro-life and sponsored pro-life legislation, and will continue to do that as long as I think all of us are in Columbia. And, and Philip, i got to believe it, it, it. To some degree, this is the convergence of your political beliefs and your spirituality. Well, my spirituality puts it, you know, no abortion. Okay, and that's, that's where I'd like it to be. I think we'd all like it to be. We'd like everybody to be married, have babies, live happily ever after. Make $100,000 a year and have the house paid for? Sure. It takes 18 years to get them raised and then 10 more to financially support them. So, you know, it, it's a long process. It's a serious thing to have a child. Uh, I've got my first grandchild, by the so, way. And, and, you know, life takes a new perspective sometimes. But life is, is so precious. What what you look at here, uh, yeah, two weeks to, from the last period. So that's when you're most fertile. And then... But that's already two weeks gone. Think about it. You've got one month after that to make that decision. So it's a quick time for a female. If she misses one period and she's active in sex, she better be checking if she's going to have an abortion in South Carolina. Otherwise, she may have to travel. Let's go to the phone. Someone else is there. Jim in Florence. Good morning. You are on with the delegation. Hey, good morning, guys. So whenever we talk about abortion, whenever they talk about abortion, we should be talking about what we're doing for adoption adoption shouldn't be easy per se but it shouldn't be as expensive as it is um we should be talking what are we going to do um for working families uh what are we going to do i I know we you know we don't want to talk about subsidies but you know you subsidize the things you want you tax the things you don't want um you know we got a birth rate of 1.71 south carolina in a sense isn't necessarily growing we're just moving people in um so uh, so to Josh, I, I would I would take my advice uh, for you a little bit further than Ken. I wouldn't say just go buy a gun. I would say uh, find you, go to church, get you a wife, and have as many children as possible. Because the only way we get our country out of this cycle is we have more children than they do. Um, so I I don't I think abortion is completely wrong. But if they're going to murder their own children to sacrifice it to some leftist God, whatever God it is, I don't know if we should quite stand in the way. But um, but all that, uh, I, I do want to ask a, a different question to the delegation. I keep seeing all these uh, uh, stories about the insurance issue with uh, restaurants uh, and bars that serve alcohol. I, you know, I, I don't really know where to stand because I you know, these places do become problematic uh, for people that are killed in car wrecks by drunk drivers. And I just wanted to get uh, where you all stand on that law that required the million-dollar insurance policy um, and what you all intend to do, if anything. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. As usual, Jim's um, loaded for bear. 
you, you were kind of sticking your finger in the air when, when he was talking about abortion, making abortion more, ex- I mean, excuse me, making adoption more accessible. Yes, yeah, so Jim's absolutely right on the adoption issue. This was always should be and always um, was planned to be a sort of a twofold issue for us as Republicans at the state house. You know, go back in time. We found ourselves as a destination state based on a lot of different factors when our original heartbeat bill was found unconstitutional. Um, and so step one was to cure our, our very serious problem immediately. And we worked very hard and got that done to then get the heartbeat bill, what I call the the new and improved heartbeat bill um, fixed so we could get it back in the courts. So then they could um, fortunately uh, declare it constitutional in a four to one decision not that long ago. But we absolutely need to be talking about, should be talking about, don't choose abortion, choose adoption. Um, We make it way too difficult in South Carolina, in my opinion. It's way too expensive for individuals who would like to adopt a child to go do that process. Um, and it should be, it shouldn't be an easy process. Jim's right about that. I mean, we're handing over, um, a life. We're handing over a child. We need to make sure we're handing them to folks that have good intentions and will raise that child in the right way or in, in a safe, um, healthy, uh, home environment. Um, so look for legislation that that's already been pre-filed or filed and it, it should be coming down the path on uh, this next legislative session come January. Well, let's shift gears. If you don't mind, Philip, and go to the restaurant and the million-dollar insurance policy. I mean, I've read some of this. I probably not understand it or, and, and have not uh, reviewed it uh, like, like you guys have. But is that something the General Assembly will take up this coming session? Yeah, it was something we talked about last week when we were up in Greenville at the caucus event. And, you know, it's, it sets up like this. You know, a guy goes to the bar, drinks too much, gets in a wreck, and, and damages somebody else and their property, maybe a person on top of it. And – and he was served too much. So he now wants to blame somebody else. He wants to blame the bar for serving him too much. And all right, well, I don't know that the bar keeps tabs on how many you got and how much food you consumed, how quickly you drank it. And they don't know what you took in addition to that or drank before you got there. So it's difficult on a bar. What's also difficult is for the bar to get insurance. And the insurance is going up astronomically, trying to, to, to cover these costs, and they're saying they're losing two to one right now on, on the money that's being paid out versus premiums being paid in. So insurance companies are leaving the state, and, and so they're not going to be able to find insurance in a short order because this has escalated, and, uh, and it's on a path now to where you're, we've got to find a way to kind of separate what a true bar is and what a restaurant is and, and look at that because we're running out some very good restaurants. And, heck, I don't, I don't want to run out the watering holes too. But we, I think our young children have got it right, and I think Uber has made it very easy to avoid getting a DUI. There are ways to get designated drivers and pay a Uber who most of the time are pretty quick to get by and, and get you home. Jay, is this an issue of personal responsibility? It is. Um, but it's more complicated than that. It, it is. It, it is more complicated than that. We, we tried to fix a legitimate problem, as Philip described it pretty well. Um, you know, we had many people come testify when we took up this legislation originally with in, in putting in place a million-dollar requirement that had been, you know, damaged forevermore um, by tracking the process back to these overserved folks, and then they get hurt, and then they have – you know, they're, they're, they can't walk the rest of their lives or going through a, a myriad of just terrible situations. 
Um, and so we said, well, we're going to require these folks have insurance so that there is when this happens, when these tragedies happen, there's something to, to, to fall back for these victims to fall back on. Now we find ourselves in a situation where um, insurance companies are leaving because they say it's too expensive for them to provide coverage to these places. And I, I get that argument, too. Um, it, I, if I was an insurance company and you're trying to figure out who's a good, um, you know, who's a good risk because that's what they do. Uh, I would think the the bars that serve late at night are probably going to have more claims than the places that close at at eight o'clock at night. So we've got to find a way um, to to temper the issue. I will say this, uh, and I'll I'll stick up for my fellow lawyers. I don't like to do that very often because I get in trouble doing that. But the lawyers probably aren't as big of a problem on this one um, as you think they are. Uh, these are legitimate victims that have been hurt. And uh, the other thing I'll say too is. Uh, the insurance companies are leaving and they're saying they're not making money. I'm not so sure that's a, the whole story either because insurance companies have been pretty profitable over the last few years. But let, let's stay here for a second, Philip, if you don't mind. So, so what, I mean, for, from your perspective and what is the responsibility of the, of the, the, the restaurant or bar owner? I mean, it's, it, it, is it their job to monitor police, how much you've had to drink? I mean, obviously we're trying to find some balance, I guess, between personal responsibility and the, uh, the, the business owner who has, I guess, some responsibility to operate their business, um, in a moral and ethical fashion. Well, yeah. And I don't know a bartender who can estimate if you're a 0.08 or a 0.09 or whatever. I mean, I don't know that he can recognize that. And I don't that. know that we should ask the restaurant owner that well, question. Should we, should you keep, should you pry into how are you getting home? Do you have a ride home? I mean, how far does the restaurant owner or bartender go? Uh, it is a personal responsibility, and you're supposed to have insurance. We don't have enough insurance on most people to cover problems. I mean, the, the minimum stuff like a liability, and that's it. That claim doesn't cover that doesn't cover the car, or totaling a car, much less damaging permanently somebody for life. And and it's a, it's a serious problem, but. I, I don't know. What do you do? You say, all right, if you want to drink, you got to blow in this and show me what your blood alcohol level. I mean, that's, that's a potential help. It's not a cure, but it would help. It costs you a quarter because the little plastic pieces, you know, it costs a quarter. So here, you want another drink? Blow in this, you know. And, um, and, and Jay, you're defending the lawyers and I, and I'll, I'll give you one. I'll defend the lawyers here, but because I believe, um, once you demand or insist to require a business, to have something, you've distorted the marketplace, and they're going to take advantage of that. So the insurance companies know that the bar owner has no choice but to purchase this insurance, and the insurance by that nature gets more expensive. Uh, good Lord, I'm kind of a Jeffersonian-leaning libertarian or libertarian-leaning Jeffersonian. I mean, should the should the General Assembly look into some sort of um, ah, controlling mechanism of what that policy should cost. I mean, is there is there a way to is there a way to evaluate what the fair market value of that insurance coverage is? Well, we. I mean, we're, we're getting in the weeds now. Sure, you would agree? Sure, I agree. Um, and, and it it very much in the weeds because we say we're a fair market, but then we put these restrictions in place. So then the insurance company says, "Well, that's fine. We'll just do business in North Carolina and sure. Georgia." So I understand that issue too. You know, we've got to bring more people to the market. How do we then, do that? that? That's that, that's my next question. How do we entice more insurance companies to participate in this marketplace? It becomes, in my mind, a balancing act between, you know, the insurance company is going to want 
us to put more restrictions or training type situations on the bars so that they'll have less claims walking out the door. Mitigate uh, some of their risk. Exactly. One of one of the ideas, everything's on the table, I guess you'd say, from reducing the mandatory um, from a million down or wiping away the mandatory. Um, I think that's going to have to be discussed. But bear in mind, remember, there's still a lot of tragedies that we we um, we remember and we'll hear from again, I'm sure, as to why that minimum mandatory is even in place. The other side of it is, you know, we've we've discussed, you know, put yourselves in the in the shoes of the business owner there for a second. How are they supposed to navigate this? Um, so I've I've heard some discussions about and heard, uh, actually seen some testimony about. Maybe we need to look at what other states are doing. Some states are, you know, creating a, a course that the um, the um, business owner can go online, put their people go, let their people go online and take a an hour course and say this is what you look for for someone who's overserved. And then I think you you look at the the industry itself. I think while you um, you don't want to probably put those people in a situation where they're saying blow into this before you get your next beverage. But at the same time, those people are usually know, in my experience from taking depositions and those kind of things, you know, how long have you been serving drinks? I've been doing this for 10 years. Well, you know when someone's crossed the line and shouldn't take that next drink. Um, so there are, there are ways to skin the cat. We just have to be able to find it. And, Philip, we've got to be careful not to burden the business owner unnecessarily. You know, I, I think you have to – look at the percentage of alcohol sales in a place versus food. And that kind of tells you, are you a late night bar? You look at when they close, that kind of thing. And there probably ought to be two different price points there on an insurance policy where, you know, if, if, if you close at 10 o'clock because you're mainly a food place who serves some beverages, then the, you know, the, the distinguish a little bit between the, the true bar and the true restaurant. And, and there's a blend. There's never going to be a perfect answer there, but that, no, but you're getting the risk reward association more more in line than if you treated, uh, you know, somebody who stays open till two o'clock in the morning and ninety percent of their sales are or beer, ten percent pretzels and peanuts. We'll give you now, a hot dog. To, yeah, yeah. To, to check the box that we here's serve a, food. Here's a hot dog we can throw in the microwave before you drive you on your way yeah. home after your eleventh bourbon and ginger ale. You know, I, I'll agree. I mean, I think that is a very reasonable compromise, and I hope you guys can get there. Um. Okay, let's let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Nine of the things Jordan doesn't know and, and Lowe and I do. Lowe sends me a text. I mean, these guys were not with us last Friday. They were in the upstate uh, kind of having a caucus meeting about where the party is, where the party's headed, what you, the voters, consider the most important issues. One thing that I found interesting, Philip, and I'll start with you and because Jordan doesn't know anything about what you and I share in secret <laughs> and private. But it was the um, the percentage of Republican voters in the PD that strongly support what Republican office holders. I mean, it was pretty substantially better than every other of every other area of of the state. That's got to make you feel like you're in sync with the people that send you to Columbia. That's true. I, I'll tell you, you left one word out. It's primary voters. Primary voters. You're so, right. And here's the distinction because. For years, I've been complaining that the polling statistics that they gather up in Columbia for us in our Republican caucus are our general election Republican voters, not the primary voters. So Jay and I don't have significant worries about a Democrat in the fall in a general election. We would be more concerned about a primary election 
for the Republican seat that we hold now. So this is the first year they've switched and they're checking out what the primary voters. And you know what that means is we're now governing more conservative because we're listening to the Republicans and we're not governing based on the general election, which is the more moderates. And now listen, I, I love all my Republicans and, and, uh, I like a lot of Democrats, uh, but I'll tell you, listening to that, getting a high percentage like we did, we we were eight points above any other area in the state for what Republican primary voters thought of PD legislators. So we're doing something right around here, and I think it's your show it helps. Well, we'll take all the credit. Of course we will. We'll take. But, but Jay, you and I have uh, not argued, we've debated, that the concern a lot of Republican office holders have today is the Trump phenomenon and the uncertainty around it. Jordan's asked me, and I don't think he'd mind me disclosing this. Jordan's asked me, do I know my voters as well as I think I know my voters? Because Trump's shaking things up. I mean, historically, that there was an analysis, and there was policy, and there was a way to get elected. Trump shows up, and we're like, how much of that applies anymore? And, and office holders honestly don't know how much of the old applies and how much is this, 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 this new Trumpism or America first has involved in the party. No, I think that's that's exactly right and very fair. Um, you know, President Trump came along with a uh, conservative agenda on the one hand, and we look back at the policies that he implemented while he was president, and I think we've all agreed many times around this table that, you know, he governed in a way that we it'd be hard to find fault with for the most part. Um, but he comes also with a style that um, is hair on fire, um, unlike anything we've ever seen before. And I, I would say it this way too. We've seen many, many, many people over the, since he's come on the stage, try and duplicate that Trump, um, atmosphere and that Trump style and they fall short. Um, you know, you can act like Trump, but people don't b buy into it unless you are Trump. Um, so, but, but to that stat, that, that tells that communicates to me that we have some good conservative folks in the PD region, um, that believe in conservative principles of government and they expect their government to, uh, when you send people to Columbia or Washington or to the town council, they expect people to, to implement conservative policy. And, and Philip, one thing that, that was, was pretty obvious to me, inflation is on the top of everyone's mind, whether it's a primary voter in South Carolina or an independent voter in, in Montana. I mean, what things cost is very relatable to nearly, if you're watching Seinfeld, it matters what things cost. If you're watching C-SPAN, it matters what what things cost. And that's a big deal. You're not in charge of the fed. You don't vote on federal debt and, uh, you guys have a balanced budget men, but you have to abide by, but that is the central issue of this election cycle. Biden inflation. That's what it's about. Biden and the federal government just continued to spend, kept people on the couches forever after COVID did and threw out so much money that it, it just, it just made us what? 20% everything inflated. It's killing. They have to kill the market. They have to kill the economy to get inflation under control. So you know we're we've seen the interest rates, and that's about their only tool in the toolbox right now to to deal with. But forty nine percent of the Republican primary voters said that rising prices, inflation, and cost of living were the most important. You know what the second place was? All the way thirteen points, forty nine to thirteen. Wow. So I mean. And then it was taxes and government spending. Well, heck, that's the same as the above. I mean, that, that's government spending causing inflation. So when, you're, when you get down to it, you're, you're talking 
63% of the voters, that's all that's on their mind. And the sad part is that we didn't cause it and we can't solve it. I wish we could solve it, but on the state level, we don't have those tools in the toolbox. We balance our budget. We don't spend more than we take in. And we've given rebates and, and all back to the people and tax cuts and all kinds of things that, that should help. But, I mean, you keep going down to growth and development was, what, 12%, education schools, 8%. Jobs, 6%, you know, roads and bridges, 4%. When's the last time roads and bridges were at 4%? But, but, but Jay, to Phillip's point, if you can't control inflation, but fl- inflation is not unique to the private sector. I mean, if, if government issues contracts to, to maintain roads and bridges, to fix roads and bridges, to build new roads and bridges, inflation is a big deal there. So, in other words, if the government set aside X number of dollars for roads and bridges, and they thought that was enough, but the construction of roads and bridges is 30% more expensive, you all of a sudden don't have enough to do what you anticipated the needs were. No, that's exactly right. This is a problem that that is like water to a crack on every other problem. You know, Philip listed off those list of things, and it used to be, you know, the polling would change places, right? You know, um, education would be first on the list in 2019. And then it was roads in 2018. And, you know, the same issues would be jockeying for which is the most important issue at the time. And then this is something different based on what the federal government has done in that this, this uh, issue of spending and the value of your dollar has jumped over everything else. And people are starting to realize, wait a minute, it used to cost me, you know, 25 bucks to go get, value meals at Chick-fil-A for my family. And now it's $55. And that is a shock to the system. At some point it's going to catch up, but to your point, you know, we budget a hundred million dollars for, for roads. And now all of a sudden what we could get for a hundred million gets us 80% of what we got a year ago. So now we're having to find another $20 million to make up for the shortfall to do a project that we thought we had covered. So it's, it's, you know, it, I like like Philip said, and we said last week, good news, bad news. Good news is we didn't cause this problem. The bad news is we don't necessarily have the tools in the toolbox to fix it. And it makes, as we say, elections very important. And who we elect as president this next time around is of the utmost importance. And Philip has got to complicate things with the ways and means. Well, projects that we funded that were supposed to go for five miles of a water sewer project or something like that, We've sent the money out, and they're getting the bids back. And right now, it's kind of in the engineering and bid phase where where they're figuring out they don't have the money to do what they did. So instead of five miles, you get three miles. That's right. And the things you promised can't be delivered. I mean, that that's a a complicated ordeal. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Rujan in Darlington. Good morning. You're on with the delegation. Good morning, guys. Hey, listen. As, as a as a as a former well, not former, I'm a marine. I've uh, been stationed out in California. I saw the uh, the whole illegal immigration thing uh, up close and personal. Um, now what I'm seeing is the Biden administration has stated that they're going to allow uh, work permits for these illegal immigrants. Um, can't the, Can't we as a state set up a policy that all employers must – use e-verify because the only people that that are that are being hurt by this uh, i mean well we're all being hurt by it because it, it costs you know it, it it costs people jobs you know when 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 they can't get a job because somebody you know undercuts them you know they can a business can hire somebody at, at a lower rate 
but but the thing about it is, I mean, why is our government, our, our particularly our president, allowing illegal people that are here, basically criminals, to to basically benefit from their crime, which is it's, it's, it's just against the rule of law. I don't get it. And can we do something about that here in South Carolina to, to, to make sure we don't get bit by that by that snake? Thank you, Rujan. I think roughly eight years ago we did something, basically an E-Verify type thing. But it was a non-serious attempt, in my opinion, because it kind of required on someone to tell on somebody to get them in trouble. And the wink and the nods were going around. Because let me tell you, the Democrats weren't working. And Republicans were glad to have a Mexican come over and, and go to work. I mean, there's just so much of the harder labor jobs that we couldn't find. I say we, the Republicans, couldn't find workers to do. So it, we passed a bill. It was the E-Verify type thing. But And you're supposed to, when you're hired, you're supposed to check through all this. The penalty wasn't stiff enough to, to really cause an enforcement issue there. And they've very selectively enforced that. Jay, it is pretty crazy to watch some of the visuals and optics of the, 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 this this mass uh, of humanity. Uh, you know, I call it an invasion, uh, but but there there are these people for whatever reason uh, making their way into our country. They're not obviously following the law. I saw a Chicago City Council meeting early this week where they were like, "I mean, Chicago's a sanctuary city. I mean, they, they they're in the open borders until you know they they leave the ranches of Texas." And, uh, and enter some of the homeless shelters of Chicago. Uh, that's kind of a national issue. Would you care to share an opinion? No, it's crazy. And I think people get frustrated because they see these pictures of people just openly violating the law and um, then coming into this country. And then some of those folks um, committing illegal acts once they get in the country. And then the cost that comes along with that and the other issues. And then on the other hand, the government, um, you know, People feel like they're, frustra- or they're frustrated because then the government, on the other hand, will find things to nitpick. And, you know, our, the, our citizens, um, Philip had a great example, you know, not too long ago where he's, you know, fishing and the Coast Guard shakes him down. But they're not worried about the, you know, million people coming over the border illegally. They're worried about some fish um, that he did everything legally compliant, by the way. I say that as his friend and lawyer. Um <laughs> <laughs> but and then on the other hand as well, we see situations where people that want to do it the right way. I think we're making it incredibly difficult on those folks. You know, I'm I'm aware of a situation right now uh, where you've got a wife who's a citizen, a husband who wants to become a citizen. He's a he's a very qualified um, individual who you know has a good job lined up, and they're making him jump through. I mean, unbelievable. It's almost um, not worth obeying the law. I mean, you hate to say it that way, but that's kind of where we've ended up. You're kind of better off than you'd save thousands and thousands of dollars to just, you know, hey, just jump the damn yeah. fence. <laughs> I mean, I hate to say that, but that's kind of where, that's we, where we are, where we've ended up. Let's go to the phone. Then we'll take a break. Jim in Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning. You're on with the delegation. And I have a, a specific question for the delegation. Sorry, Ken. Um, the biggest problem that I see with illegal immigration that nobody, and I mean nobody, has been talking about for the last five years, because this happened to me and this happened to my wife. We were living in Arizona for seven years, and during those seven years, an illegal immigrant was working at a chicken factory, not going to say any names, and was not paying taxes. And when I returned to South Carolina, 
the IRS seized all the funds in my bank account that are lean against my, you know, everything because this illegal immigrant had stolen my wife's ID in order to work. And when I went and I approached that company about what was going on, they said, the person at the counter literally said to me, you know, this happens every year that people just flood in here complaining about somebody stole their identification. With with a, with a website on the Internet, I can go reset my password. You tell me how I go and I reset my password called my Social Security number. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that. Anybody want to give uh, – I mean, I, I don't have any advice for Jim there. I can't get through two weeks on Facebook without getting hacked. I don't know. The world's turned into a bunch of thieves sitting behind a microphone and – I mean, behind a computer. <laughs> it, it's just amazing – I didn't. Mean, I didn't mean microphone. I was just looking at you. I get it. I mean, it, it, it's it's but, it, but it's a it's a multi-billion-dollar industry. I mean, hacking and and cybersecurity is something people are wondering whether they're investing enough in or not. That's exactly right. Criminals are you know are going to find new and improved way new and improved ways to complete criminal activity. You know, you take steps to try and head it off at the pass, and they find a tunnel to get around the roadblock. Yeah, well said. We'll take a break. We'll be back with some football picks. On the other side, we run our miles about as they run the government. We run it about as well as they run, <laughs> as they run the government. It's easier to run your mouth than run the government. You know, it's easier than anything, Rev, to run your mouth about those who are running the government there you go. or trying to run That's right. um, the government. We decompress in the last hour of the week. We do 20 hours of conservative radio. Um, we do the best we can. We have our moments of, um, of being pretty good and our moments of not being but so good. But but the last hour of the week, in particular during football season, we kind of let our guard down and decompress and start talking about um, football. Uh, we, we said this morning, and I and I talked to a good Clemson buddy of mine yesterday, and we were talking about there, there's a there's a business issue that he and I have a mutual interest in, and the conversation, as I knew it would, went to football and his feelings about Clemson, my feelings about South Carolina. Um, I mean, he grew up in the rivalry like I have, but he said. You guys screwed us up last Saturday. And I said, what do you mean? He said, we all set up the tailgate to celebrate a big Georgia win. And in halftime, you guys are up 14-3. We can't have fun. <laughs> I mean, we can't we can't enjoy ourselves because we don't need you guys upsetting the number one team in the country on the road. And after uh, reality set in and Georgia woke up and did what Georgia tends to do to about everybody they play, um, you know, we got the, the, the earth got back on its axis and we were able to enjoy ourselves. Well, that'll be something – uh, similar to Columbia tomorrow. I mean, it will. There will be many people on non-university-owned property tailgating, and they'll be the biggest Florida State fan you could imagine. And they will. That's And I mean this sincerely, guys. That's the way it should be. I mean, that's and just, I mean, that's it, fun. It, it's the rivalry. No, sure. I mean, there's, I mean, I ain't talking about fighting and keying cars and, yeah. and all that craziness and nonsense, but I'm talking about um, if one school is your rivalry, why would you wish prosperity on them? I mean, you know, the, the the fans that say, well, I pull for both teams. Well, I mean, kind of a Seinfeld watcher. You know, uh, if you're invested in one program or another, they're your rival, you're theirs, and any good thing that happens to them is net negative to you. I mean, that, that's just the nature of, of the beast. And once again, um, I mean, I've had a few people in my world go overboard, and I, you know, like, whoa, we're not doing that. I mean, I'm not, you're talking about, fighting and all this nonsense oh. and there's no g on fighting just in case you're wondering i mean i ain't up for all that mess 
But it is, it was fun. I got to believe watching Georgia come from behind against South Carolina Saturday if you're near Death Valley. Mm -hmm. And it will be fun tomorrow if Florida State is able to, um, uh, you know, I mean, it's going to be a close game. I think uh, Jason Priester with allclemsontiger.com <laughs> is with us. And um, and I think Jason expects a, a close game. I mean, is that fair to say? I mean, you would expect a highly competitive game. I'd like to know what Jason thought last week when South Carolina was up against Georgia at halftime. I, I texted text me at yeah. halftime. You did? You did? <laughs> <laughs> and how'd you feel? <laughs> I was a little surprised, but not shocked. Um he kind of let me know what was coming in the second half. <laughs> he was right. He I mean, was a fortune teller. Well, I mean, yeah. now, I'm just, here's what I've learned. Um, good players at some point in time will beat not so good players. I mean, they, you know, and, and you, you kind of, here's, here's, here was my theory on the game. So the Gamecocks get up 14-3. And I'm, I'm saying to myself, well, I'm not saying to myself, I'm on a group text. And I said, if we get to 28, we got a shot. I mean, if we get to 28 points, we got a chance to win this game. We ain't winning it with 14. I mean, this ain't the 1960s or 70s or 80s, and this ain't, you know, Furman. I mean, you're playing arguably the best team in America, and they're not going to lay an egg for four quarters because they got two good players. I mean, they got too many good players. Good players can lay an egg for a quarter or two, but good players don't lay an egg for four quarters. And I knew that sooner or later, um, Georgia would wake up and they'd make some plays because, once again, they've got really, really good players. Now, I didn't expect this. I didn't expect the Gamecocks to stink it up on offense like like they did. But, you know, they made some adjustments. South Carolina just was not able um, to react to those to those adjustments. I've got I've got a theory there. But, but I'll say this, and I think Jason will agree with me. As a Clemson fan, he knows the value of great quarterback play. And I'm not saying Rattler's a great quarterback. But but if Spencer Rattler gets rolling, I mean, he's a lot of fun to watch. And he can light up a defense if he starts kind of feeding off his own energy, Jason. I watched him light up Clemson's defense yeah. last year. Mm -hmm. I didn't get watched the second half of the Georgia game. I had to leave at halftime. But I was he, – he had played well in the first half. Um, I was – a little surprised. <laughs> it messed up your day. Huh? Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I will admit I don't pull for South Carolina ever. You yeah. should. Yeah, I don't think it's good it. for the state. <laughs> Both teams are good. I don't understand <laughs> that logic. I can't wrap my head around a, that when a, I see a true people Clemson say that. fan, and I respect it. Sure. I, I, I don't know how it's good for the state exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I, you. I think I South Carolina should lose that. every week. Yeah, I, I, and I understand if you say that. I, I do respect this. I love my state, and I'm pulling for everything good to happen to my state. I understand that. But I love these. what's good for the state. Nobody cares. <laughs> I mean, in the grand scheme of things, Clemson fans care. Gamecock fans care. It's a lot of fun. And, to, you know, Saturday was a lot of fun for us for a half. And, and I thought about it. I said, man, I'd love to be at Death Valley right now because I bet you could hear a pin drop because they're looking at one another like, this, this is not what we counted on. I mean, this is not what was supposed to happen. Now, conversely, if we get to Columbia tomorrow, and I'll probably get there at about halftime, and we'll have the TV set up and all. And uh, if if I turn the TV on, and my, my oldest son takes care of all that. I mean, he's he's in charge of tailgating. And, I mean, he, he does not like anybody uh, kind, of, kind of intruding on his responsibility. So if he turns the TV on and it's Clemson 21, uh, Florida State 0, th there'll be a bit of a deflation period. You know what I mean? We'll have to – give me that bottle. Give me that bottle real quick. Give me that Give me that bottle. Let's get, but, uh, but I look for a, a really good – Florida State Clemson game, and I and I'll say this, Jason. Florida State being good is important for the ACC. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's been Clemson and nobody else for too long, and the conference has kind of gotten a bad name 
as well as it should have because this produced some pretty bad football over the years, you know, some pretty bad football teams. It, it needs more than Clemson, and I would absolutely agree. Florida State being good is good for the league. It's kind of good for Clemson in a roundabout way, even though, again, I don't think you should ever pull for your rivals of any kind. <laughs> okay, but, but, but let's go here for a second. So other than – I thought about this this morning. Other than the, the, the playoff games Clemson's been involved in and Notre Dame – They've just simply had better players than anybody else. Does Florida State have as good a players as Clemson when they take the field tomorrow? I think they do. Mike Norvell has done a fantastic job, you know, of kind of transforming that roster through the transfer portal. They have added some dynamic guys at a wide receiver. They can get that running game going and get that offensive line to jail. <laughs> the the potential is through the roof. I think that is a playoff caliber team if they can get it all to come together. And one guy came from South Carolina. Remember the name of Jaheim Bell? Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a playmaker at South Carolina. Ended up at Florida State. Why? We ain't had no money. He's been in the headlines this week. Yeah, I saw that. Sure has. And you would, yeah, he's, he's kind of that kind of guy as well. Okay, so 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 let's let's do this. I want to go back to something we discussed last week. We're doing a podcast today, yeah. right? Yeah, it publishes at 10, and it is about NIL and the change to college football. We we normally we normally dedicate the majority of our podcast to politics. That's what we do here. But but Jason, I am so interested. I guess concerned with the state of college football with all the transitioning that is happening today. What is your opinion of NIL? I mean, take Clemson out of the equation. Take the Gamecocks out of the equation generically in general terms. What is your opinion of um of this newfound phenomenon that college programs are dealing with? I think everybody should have the right to make money off of their name. I don't think anybody should be able to be told, hey, you cannot profit off your name. That That's your name. You own that. You know, that you should be able to profit off of that. I also think it's got to be fair, you know, for everybody. There's got to be some kind of guidelines in place, um, I'm not a big fan of the pay for play. Um, I think it should be based on the value of your name, you know, some kind of advertising, something, you know, just not, hey, I'm going to give you this much money just to come play for me. But I, I thought at the root of it, the way it was in, the way it was intended, I think it was good for the sport, but the way it's played out, I'm not so sure it's, it's good for the sport. There, there have been a lot of unintended consequences, and now that the genie's out of the bottle, I don't know that you can put it back in. Well, Jason, do you, do you worry that – I mean, the NFL has been – the NFL is built on parity. I mean, every game is a one-score game. I mean, I read somewhere 83% of all NFL games in the last five years have been decided by one scoring possession by a team or other – when you look at college football, I mean, I look at the roster of games, I, I bet the average margin of victory will be 12, 14, 16 points. I mean, there, there'll be a few close games, and Florida State-Clemson's an intriguing matchup because both teams have good players. I think Mississippi State and South Carolina have similar rosters. I mean, they're kind of sort of uh, similar to one another, just like I think North Carolina would be in that same boat with South Carolina and Mississippi State. Georgia click better than, than just about everybody now. But, but the NFL decided at some point in time to practice football socialism. And by that, I mean, let the worst team draft first. Let the worst team have the first pick in the second draft, first pick in the third draft, because at the end of the day, the sport's not the sport's not healthy if only two or three teams have chances to win championships. My concern is, and we said last week, 
The Gamecocks and Tigers, I mean, if you had two categories, have and have nots, the Gamecocks and Tigers are in the have category. There's no question about it. But if this thing comes down to NIL and, and paying players, Texas, Texas A&M, Ohio State, Michigan, uh, Southern Cal, a couple of other teams are going to have such an advantage. Um, my, my podcast theory, and I want to get your take on this. My podcast theory is let's assign a slot value to that player. Let's use Spencer Rattler. I'm going to be talking about him a second ago, and I'm just arguing. Let's say that Spencer Rattler is projected to be the 50th player in the NFL draft. I have no idea what his stock is. He's Bitcoin. It depends on what half of the game it is. Um, but let's say, for argument's sake, that he's the 50th player in the draft, and the NFL assigns a dollar value to that player. Let's say it's a million dollars. I mean, I'm just arguing. I mean, I, I don't have no, I have no idea where he gets drafted and what he gets paid. Um, but but the 50th player in the NFL draft gets a million dollars. The colleges can pay up to 25% of that slot fee. That means if South Carolina and Clemson want Spencer Rattler, they can decide to offer 250 or less. But Texas or Ohio State can't offer a million dollars. Am I on the right trail? I absolutely. It's got to be something where it's, you know, kind of fair for everybody because you're you talking about those schools that have so much more money to spend than say a Clemson or a South Carolina. I'll use SMU as an example, who was just voted into the ACC and they're going to come in for free for seven years. And you know why they raised a hundred million dollars in seven days last week, a hundred million dollars. Wow. I mean, and, and they would be the kind of the third or fourth wealthiest school in the state of Texas. They're, Clemson and South Carolina is not raising a hundred million dollars in seven weeks. Uh, that can be used for, NIL money or whatever. Um, yeah, I, I agree. It's got you've got to have some kind of guidelines in place to make it where it's free. I mean, not free, but equitable for everybody. Everybody has the kind of realistic shot or a fair shot. And school A doesn't have this huge advantage over school B when it comes to signing talent or bringing in talent or however you want to term it. So basically, a salary cap is what you're talking about. Well, I mean, about. yeah, in essence, I am. And, and I don't, I mean, obviously, that's a theory. I mean, I'm just throwing right. that out there. That's an idea or concept that I have. But, but, but Jason's right. You cannot, I mean, it's not, if you're a Texas fan, it's good. I mean, if you're an Ohio State fan, it's good. But if you're, if you're a Gamecock or Tiger, and, and, and listen, I think, I mean, Dabo has built a program on culture and, 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 and some of the characteristics of that program that are unique. And he has done, an unbelievable job at selling that to um to kids who aren't that familiar with Clemson. Um, I mean, if you grew up in the rivalry, it's one thing. But if you're a kid from, I mean, a defensive lineman from Ohio, he doesn't know much about South Carolina, Clemson, some of the uh you know ACC, SEC uh, infighting. But he does know uh, you know a certain culture when he recognizes it. But 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 I think Dabo's one of the coaches, Jason, that that is most at risk here. Because he's spoken publicly against an IL, uh, in, in preference of the culture and Brandy's building, but but I mean, if you're sitting down with mom and dad and kid, you know, six five, two hundred twenty five pound wide receiver that can run like the wind, and Texas just left the table offering your kid a million dollars, Dabo says, yeah, but I'm going to offer him a character building experience. Um, I know which offer I take. Yeah, I, that's why Clemson's pool of players that they target so small because it's it's not the it's not going to resonate with everybody, and it's going to get smaller now that this NIL stuff's a factor. I talked to a kid in this state last week. 
I'm not going to name his name, but he's in the 2026 class. And he was telling me the way Clemson is doing things, it's going to start hurting them in the future. You know, they don't start offering kids until right before their junior year start, like June before the start of their junior seasons. And the recruiting process has sped up so much. Forget the NIL stuff. You know, it's just sped up. Kids are starting to make decisions before that. And if they haven't made decisions, they've got a top five. And if you're not offering until that late, you're way behind the eight ball. He, he told me flat out, if Clemson waits till June before my sen- junior season to offer me, I, I'm all right. They're going to be in the rearview mirror. And, he, you know, he started talking about NIL. That's going to be a big factor in his recruitment. And Clemson's not so far. They have resisted getting into those bidding wars. It's more of a, hey, this is what we're going to offer you. And you're not going to get it just to sign. You're going to have to come earn it. And it's not like that at most schools. You know, you're not having to come earn your money. You're getting it to, just to sign. Clemson's probably got some adjusting to do over the next few years. And Dabo Sweeney's a guy that has been slow to adjust to some of these changes. Well, he's kind of old school. Yeah. I mean, he's old school and likes things done the way he likes things done. And all of a sudden, this tsunami of money, you know, shows up at the door. And, I, and I'll say this. I know firsthand. I mean, I've got some firsthand experience. Um, I mean, the Gamecocks were able to retain Juice Wells and Spencer Rattler, but they weren't able to retain two other players that would have been very important to this team, Marshawn Lloyd and Jaheim Bell, because they didn't have any money. I mean, you know, that, that's just, a, I mean, you, you, it's not an unlimited amount of money. And, and when you say, okay, this kid is the most important kid, this kid is second most important, what happens to the third and fourth and fifth most important? And here's the, here's the issue I have. Let's say Clemson brings in a kid, and they develop this kid into a, you know, an elite defensive lineman, and all of a sudden Texas comes knocking on the door, needing what? An elite defensive lineman to compete for a championship. And, and they just, you know, they say, get him no matter what it takes. There's an old story about um, Bobby Cox walking into Ted Turner's office and saying, Ted, Fred McGriff is going to be available tomorrow. And Ted Turner saying, look, I pay you to run the team. I mean, obviously, he knew Fred McGriff was. And at that time, McGriff was part of the best cleanup hitter in baseball. I mean, the Padres had him, but he was probably they – were, they were kind of – they were agreeing, San Diego was, it's time to get rid of um, salary. You know, we'll rebuild. And McGriff was there. Cox walks into uh, Turner's office and said, McGriff's going to be available. And Turner says, well, I mean, you run the team. Go, go do what you got to do. And he said, he's going to be real expensive. He said, I didn't ask you how much he cost. I mean, if you think we need him, go get him. I mean, that, that, that could be Texas. I mean, Texas could be Ted Turner, George Steinbrenner, the Dodgers, and, and I, I just don't know that that's healthy for the sport that Jason writes about, covers, and I'm, I'm kind of a crazy fanatic that, over. That is what Clemson is. A lot of their NIL has been used on retaining players. There were a couple of guys, I'm not going to name them, most Clemson fans will know who I'm talking about. There were a bunch of rumors about them transferring out during right after last season. Suddenly they decided to stay. They didn't have a change of heart. I mean, that was all NIL. Sure. Um, you know, so a lot of their NIL has been focused on retention more so than bringing in high school guys. Although, I mean, I'm not saying none of it's going there. Sure. Some of it is. But a lot of it so far has been used on retention. Let's, let's do this. Let's take a break, come back, and cover specifically the Clemson-Florida State game and the South Carolina-Mississippi State game, State game. Jason Priester, who also does some work 
for community yeah. broadcasters. He, he does. He's one of our, our play-by-play guys for the high school football game of the week on ESPN Radio in the Florence area. You guys are off tonight. No game, right? No game tonight. Thank the good Lord that's a noon kickoff tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, you're you right. Go. I didn't that, think of that. That worked be, out. Yeah, that, that would be a long night and an early morning. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few. 843-661-0937. Jason Priester with allclemsontiger.com. So, so how can people follow your work, Jason? Aside of you doing football games on Friday night, um, you're, you're, I don't want to say a beat reporter, but you cover the Tigers every day of the year. How can people keep up with what you provide? beat writer that would be okay. correct you're a beat writer allclipsandtigers.com follow me on twitter at jp underscore priester okay jp underscore priester um well, let's go to um south carolina you don't keep up with the gamecocks um except for a half <laughs> <laughs> and jason did jason text me and said wow okay i uh, didn't see that coming and i said i didn't either but it, it's been a fun <laughs> half of football it was um south carolina in my opinion is playing as many toss-up conference games as they've ever played. I mean, they've got Mississippi State, and then they've got Florida, and then, no, excuse me, then they got Tennessee, and then they've got Florida, and then they've got Missouri, and then they've got Texas A&M. I mean, you could argue they're going to be the underdog at, at Knoxville. They're going to be the underdog on the road at Missouri and probably the underdog on the road at A&M, but they could win every one of these games. Or, you ready? They could lose every one of these games. They're toss-up games. That's the... That's what a toss-up game means. Um, Jason, I'm of the opinion that since they lost to North Carolina, that's toss-up game number one, they've got to win this one at home. I mean, they just can't stub their toe and lose the second toss-up game of the year, first conference game of the year at home, and a night affair in Williams-Brice. I mean, I don't want to say it's a must-win, but this is a real important game for Beamer to get kind of the the vessel pointed in in a positive direction. I would agree. Your favorite at home night game, williams Bryant Stadium. Yeah, you, you don't want to drop this, and this is one you need to have. I, I, I'm with you. I wouldn't call it a must win, but it, if you don't beat if you don't beat Ole Miss, then it, it, it kind of or Mississippi State, Mississippi State, it, then it kind of starts leaving a sour taste in your mouth after the first month of the season when there were such high expectations coming in. You know, after losing to North Carolina in the opener, but yeah, th- this is one. You need to win. Well, I mean, if, and if you don't, I'm telling you guys, trust me. I mean, you, you start this thing unravels a little bit. You go to Knoxville, you lose. You come back home. Florida seems to have found a little something. We'll find out more as time progresses. But then you go to Missouri, to A&M. I mean, it's not outside the realm of possibility that you're one in seven. I mean, if you lose Saturday night, it, there's a chance. And, and you really start, you know, as much as people want to give Beamer the benefit of the doubt, they really believe in – and his passion, his personality, his power of persuasion. Um, one and seven is one and seven. I don't care who the coach, who the coach is. I mean, I think they play well. Um, I don't think they play as well as they did the first half against Georgia, but I don't think they get pushed around like they did in the second half. I, I think what people have forgotten about this game is, I mean, Mike Leach would be on the sideline for Mississippi State if not for, you know, the tragic and unfortunate death. And that's what I was thinking about. Mike Leach is one of my favorite people and all the college football. I mean, a little of our brand here, Rev, is what? We say what we think. Well, I mean, if you don't believe Mike Leach said what he thought, <laughs> he loved being nicknamed the Pirate. And, and I'll think about that tomorrow as, uh, as Gamecocks and, and Bulldogs take the field. Um, Mike Leach should be there and, uh, and won't be. Let, let's go to your, to your Tigers. Um, as a Gamecock fan, I keep up with Florida State. 
because I'm like, somebody's got to rival those guys, man. I mean, somebody's got to put together something that creates a, um, you know, a, a stiff competitor for them in that side of the uh, Atlantic Coast Conference. And it looks to me like, and you saw a little bit of this toward the end of last year, Jason, it looks to me like Florida State has dramatically improved their roster and, and, and are ready for a big moment in the resurgence of their program. I agree. Like I touched on earlier, I think Mike Norvell has done a tremendous job of kind of just retooling that whole roster, most of, mostly through the portal, and it has led to success on the recruiting trail. They are killing it. I think they've got a top five class right now. It is just loaded. You you can tell they if they are not already back, they are on the way back, and I think tomorrow is going to go a long ways towards deciding exactly where they are right now. Are they back? Are they not back? I was one of those guys who said we need to kind of pump the brakes a little bit on on proclaiming them a top five team heading into the season. People are already talking about them being in the playoff, and I'm after last week. I'm still saying we need to pump the brakes on that because I didn't. I thought maybe they got caught looking ahead a little bit. Great teams don't get caught looking ahead very often, you know. I, I think this is a good team. I'm just not convinced they are an elite team yet, and I think we're going to find out tomorrow whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong. So where is Clemson? I mean, from your perspective, as we sit today, fair-minded, objective, where, where is the Clemson program? At a crossroads. Um, if I was looking at Clemson from a national perspective, you know, I, I, I probably have Georgia up here all by themselves. and, and then some You other- believe that? You think Georgia is clearly the dominant team in college football? I mean, there's not a dominant team because of their quarterback play, but they've got better players at, at every position, better players than anybody in America. Going into the season, I would okay, have had okay. Georgia up here. You know, they haven't been quite as dominant as I thought they would be. Then you got another gr- second group there, Ohio State. You know, I would have had Alabama in there. Maybe they're not in there anymore. You know, um, Texas might be in there right now. Southern Cal's kind of making a name to be in there right now. But you got that second group of teams. And, and then everybody else. And I think Clemson's down there right now. You know, <laughs> you have, you've got – two consecutive years where you've missed the playoff, three losses in each of those years, um, that that does not spell elite to me. Clemson's got some work to do to get back to where they once were. That's why I think this program's at a crossroads right now. I think this is a big recruiting class they're working on right now. Um, I thought they knocked it out of the park with the last one. I think they need to do it again with this one. They've kind of retooled that defensive line in the last class. They're working on retooling some of those skill spots in this class. They got some work to do to to start to climb back up that ladder to where they once were. You have failed and been consistent over the last couple of years. There's been a decline in talent at wide receiver. You you, you sense that they don't have the I don't want to say the quality, but but they don't have elite talent at wide receiver. Did have they addressed that? And and is that the only place that you see somewhat of a, a decline on the offense? I think wide receiver is one of the biggest spots. You know, they don't have generational quarterbacks right now like they had in Lawrence or Watson. Klubnik, I I think he can be really good, but I'm not going to call him a generational talent because he's not. I I think if you've got elite-level wide receivers the way you had in the past, that would go a long ways towards helping that offense be more productive. I think they missed on some guys at wide receivers. It's not that they weren't recruiting, recruiting highly rated guys that everybody else in the country was after because they were. I, I don't know if they've got a development problem or they just missed on some guys. It's hard to say they missed on every one of them. That's almost mathematically impossible. 
So I think the problems are a little deeper than that. I think I think they got some inexperience on that coaching staff. You know, if you look at the guy who's coaching the wide receivers, Tyler Grisham, I think this is his third year, fourth year. Jeff Scott left in 2019. And Clemson's receivers, the, the, the quality of play at wide receiver has fallen off dramatically since he left. Now, is that a coaching issue, developmental issue, missing on guys issue? Maybe it's a combination of all three. But I think the wide receiver play has fallen off drastically. I, I think they did some things in the last class to address that, but they're, only one of those guys is ready to play this year, Tyler Brown out of Greenville, and he was a three-star guy, and he's probably the best of the bunch. And he's already making an impact on the field. But they got two dynamic guys in the next class, and Bryant Wesco is a five-star, T.J. Moore is a four-star down, down in the Tampa area. And those guys are so talented, they'll probably come in here and play day one. Jason, is it is it? I got Clemson fans and friends of mine, and and you know we we pull against different teams, we pull four different teams, but we we kind of respect one another and and have you know real deep friendships. They believe that there will be a day Dabo regrets not recruiting the state of South Carolina as aggressively as he has. When you become a nationally elite program, you have the luxury of convincing kids from Ohio, California, Pennsylvania, Texas, that Clemson is the best place to come. And if you're not careful, there'll be the perception that you're not tending to your front porch as well as you should. Do you share that concern that Clemson has not been as attentive to the state of South Carolina in recent years as you'd like to see them? Mm, Not really. Um, That's Gamecock propaganda. They send the coaches out on the road to all these schools in this high school. They they make sure to stop at every one of them during the evaluation period. So they're at least touching base with the coaches and keeping that line of communication open. I mean, they're at every school in, in this state. I know they did that last in the last evaluation period. When you're a national brand, you don't have to stay focused on this state. You can kind of go out and try and pick and choose who you want. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think it's hurt them with some guys, but I don't think overall it's going to have that big of an impact. Let's let's use Blake Franks as an example. Greenville guy, offensive lineman. If he's not from inside this state, he's probably never on Clemson's radar. Looks like a lock. Where's he at? He's committed to South Carolina right now. Um, you know, so maybe it hurts him with some guys. I don't think overall it hurts too much though, because again. They make sure to send these assistants to every school in this state during the evaluation period. They touch base with every head high school coach. Um, I, I don't think it's that they're ignoring them. I think they're just they're better players somewhere else, Bingo. and that's what they've always thought. They're better now, but 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 in in, in to the opposite side of the equation. I mean, if I'm the Gamecocks, that's the fan. I, I mean, that's the flag I flame, or the flame I fan. As I say, hey man, those those guys don't care about this state. I mean, they're not recruiting this state. You know, we got good players in this state. And and that's kind of the, I don't want to say the dirty side of college football recruiting, but it's I mean it's it's cutthroat. I mean it's no holes barred. And if one program ascends, and the other you know the, the ascending of the program means they sign more players out of the state than in the state, the other in-state program would naturally try to tell coaches you know that program in the upstate isn't recruiting this state as they. As, I mean it's just the nature of of recruiting. I've always wondered, and Jason may have an answer to this. I've always wondered how these assistants balance recruiting and personal friendships. Cause I don't care what anybody believes. You may bleed orange. The coaches don't. 
You may bleed garnet. The coaches don't. They're mercenaries. I mean, they're in it for the money. I mean, they, they're, they're, they're seeking gainful employment, and they're seeking for the best employment opportunity. Ask Tommy West and Miles Aldridge. Ask Brad Scott. You know, ask any of these guys. I mean, they, you know, they go where they're paid um, to coach. I, I know that, and, and I'll let Jason respond. I know that every year at SEC Media Days, the coaches have a meeting with nothing but coaches. No AD, no PR, no reporter, no – I mean, the, the every head coach of the SEC goes in the room, and they stay for two hours, and all that meeting is about is to address the um, – the kerfuffles they had on the campaign trail. In, in other words, Kirby doesn't like the way Shane, you know, recruited this kid. Beamer doesn't like the way that, that Saban, oh, nobody's going to mess with him. But anyway, <laughs> you know where I'm headed. I mean, they, they have the confines of that, the security of that room, the privacy of that room, and, and they just go over any, any problem you've got with me. Let's talk about it now. Cause these coaches tell kids what they've got to tell them to convince them that's the school they need to come to. You know what? I'm gonna have to do some digging and see if if that doesn't happen at the ACC meetings every year. I've never heard about that. I'm gonna have to find out about that, and I'll get back to you and let you know. But yeah, <laughs> um, I know Dabo has been accused of dirty recruiting before. Kid every from, coach has. Oh yeah, kid from up in Ohio who Clemson ended up landing. They they the, the coaching staff told him, hey, you know, Urban Meyer's not gonna be around through your whole career. And that was considered dirty recruiting. Well, guess what? Urban wasn't there throughout his whole career. The kid ended up at Clemson. But, you know, it's something all coaches have to deal with. But I, I like that idea of all of them getting in the room together and hashing it all out. I'm gonna have to see if these ACC coaches do the same thing because I think that's a good idea. <laughs> let, let, let me tell you the best story, and I'll let Jason get out of here. So, so the story that I've heard, and this is from a pretty reliable and informed source. So they have the meeting, that they air the dirty laundry. You know, everybody who's mad at everybody gets a chance to say why they're mad at this guy. They're they're about to adjourn the meeting, and Spurrier, <laughs> Spurrier says, "Hey, I'll talk about one thing before we leave here." Everybody in this room is making more money coaching football than they ever thought they'd make. The kids ain't getting anything. We get we got to do something about that. And I want to know who's on board with us figuring out a way to give these kids a stop. And they got to get some money. Um, and and he basically, I mean, from what I'm told, he said, Nick, you making more than anybody. I mean, you make. I mean, I, I'm getting. I'm, I'm I'm making more than I ever thought I'd make coach football. We're all making more than we ever thought. Um, but but he said, you know, and everybody looked like, oh, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want to go down that road, Steve. That's not what this meeting's about. And Spurrier said, and I'm gonna tell you now. I, when we leave here, I'm going to talk to the media boys, and I'm going to tell them the ones that, that wasn't for paying the players. And he said, all of them like, sat down. I was like, whoa, 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 we, 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 you know, because they knew that he would. I mean, you know what I mean? He would go out in that room, and he'd tell the media boys, you know, the ones that were for paying the players. And, for, and I just think there's a lot of beauty in that sort of intimacy that those coaches have. It's a brotherhood. I mean, it's a fraternity, and they genuinely, I, I think, genuinely like one another. So, so, Jason, how can people follow your work? AllClemsonTigers.com. Um, you can find me on Twitter at JP underscore Priester. Again, I, I cover Clemson every day. I do a lot of recruiting. So if, if that's your thing, I am your guy. And no high school football tonight, right? Uh, well, for the high school Florence game of the week, uh, we have a bye week. Yeah, he's got to be in Clemson by noon, I would imagine, or before noon, yeah. right? I have got to be in Clemson today by 3.30. Wow. Oh, okay. Safe travels. We'll talk later. Uh, we'll talk with Jason next Monday. or Next, next I'm getting, Friday. Next Friday. We'll take a break. Josh is going like, what are you doing? We'll take a break now. <laughs> One more segment. We'll see Jason show. next Friday. Right. we got some trivia on the way. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Continuing decompression hour. I want to thank our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. They sponsor 
the compression hour, the decompression hour, the serious hour, the not so <laughs> serious hour. We have a lot of all different kinds of hours and in, uh, in segments on Wake Up Carolina. But um, staying in the spirit of college football, you ready? And the first correct dancer wins a six pack of Pepsi product. Couple of takes Mondays to make Fridays T-shirts. What football program in America generated the most revenue in the 2022 football season? The most recent 2022 football season, this university generated the most football revenue of all. 843-661-0937 is our number. What football program, college football program, generated the most revenue in 2022. Do we have an answer? Hi, you're on the air. Yeah, you know the answer? I'm going to say Alabama. Nope, you're close, but no cigar. 843-661-0937. Hello, you're on. You know the answer? Ohio State. You're right. Ohio State, $251 million. Texas, number two, at $239 million. Alabama, number three, at $214 million dollars rev that's what we call the big boys <laughs> yeah i'm sure <laughs> ohio state texas and alabama would categorize as the big boys who is this and where you calling from here in uh in Florida. okay hang okay. tight we'll get you back to josh josh will get all the uh you ready the pertinent information that go. we need to get you your prizes want to once again thank pepsi of florence um we have a little fun on mondays and fridays my grandfather, I mean, that in the truck body building business, I, I would say occasionally, I'm ready for Friday. And I mean, I was a young buck, enjoy the weekend, probably more than I should. And my granddad would always say, son, you, you can't have a Friday without a Monday. So I've taken liberties with his pronouncement. And, I, <laughs> and now said, it's on T-shirts. And it's on T-shirts. Who, takes who Mondays <laughs> to make Fridays. Well, you can't have one without without the other. It just seems like at times... We have about three or four Mondays for, for every for every single Friday. But I think it's going to be a pleasant weather weekend. Uh, I encourage our Clemson brothers for and parts sisters. of the state. I think you know, there's a along the coast. Yeah, I think, there's a you know coastal system yeah. off the coast. That's but going we to think some... Columbia will be okay. We think Clemson obviously will be okay. To our Clemson friends, stay safe. Be careful on your way to Tiger Town. To the Gamecock faithful, um, stay safe. Be careful on your way. To Willie B, it's an interesting day of football. I mean, for me, it's kind of heaven on earth. Florida State, Clemson, 12. Ohio, um, Ole Miss, Alabama, 3.30. Gamecocks and Mississippi State Bulldogs at 7.30. That's a good day. Yeah. I'll stay up past my bedtime uh, tomorrow <laughs> night. And, uh, and the tailgating, I would imagine, will be a lot of fun. Thanks to you. Uh, enjoy your weekend. Stay safe. We'll talk again at 6.06 Monday morning.